Consequence Podcast Network. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you. Greetings, constant listeners, and welcome to the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast presented by the Consequence Podcast Network. I'm Michael Rothman, Editor-in-Chief and President of Consequence of Sound, and I'm here with my co-hosts... Randall Colburn, the rockin' one. And Mackenzie Gerber. Now, you can hear us pretty well, right? I think so. That's yes. because we're recording from a studio here in Chicago, Illinois. That wasn't always the case, though. When we started this podcast, we were actually huddled around an old Yeti microphone in Mac's apartment that he doesn't even live in anymore. That's right. And there were not four or three of us. There were like six or seven. So we wanted to go back to our older episodes and make sure that you, constant listener, actually have a good grasp on knowing that this is not how it's always going to sound. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, 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 it's a very rough quality, and we just happen to have that rough quality over Stephen King's most iconic books. So Yeah, it's rough. But I'd say, yeah, I'd, for Carrie, Salem's Lot, The Shining, Rage, and The Stand, I believe. Night Shift, too. And, and Night, Night Shift. Shift. Yeah. We recorded those episodes in a very sort of primitive way, um, doing our best. That was before we got our studio, which makes us sound so lovely. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so you'll notice that the audio quality is going to be a little bit not up to par, but... I'd say the content of the conversations are still very, very good. I'm very proud of the analysis we did. You'll notice a few other changes, too. Like um, in these early episodes, we talk about everything. Everything. Yeah, we didn't like now we stretch our legs a bit. We do separate episodes for the movies, for other things. And for here, we're basically like, let's talk about all the Stephen King news, as well as the book, <laughs> as well as the films, as well as the plays, as well as everything. So these episodes run long. Um, well, I mean, a lot of ours do, but these run extra long because we're talking about those things and you'll also notice that kind of the way that we break down our conversations now is a little bit different we refine that over time yeah. so so yeah you'll notice that it's a little bit rougher but it's the same quality losers club content and that these, you've always wanted. these episodes nearly killed us uh the yeah. night shift episode i got the flu because we recorded for everything we recorded for 11 hours straight yeah I think. two yeah. episodes back to back covering all, all what 20 stories all 20 stories and, and the movie and the movies Oof. it was exhausting i was i think towards the end of the episode i started fading away dan started uh, crying dan started crying <laughs> i cried in the shining episode i believe yeah uh, so yeah th th these episodes are special they're very good episodes. they're very special episodes but we did want to make sure that you didn't go into the this podcast thinking that it's going to sound like this forever <laughs> because obviously Obviously, as you could hear from us right now, that's just not the case. Yeah, if you're just popping in to hear like, oh, I love Salem's Lot. I'm going to check out this new podcast. Why does it sound like they're recording underwater? You know, we just never really thought that. Uh, I, I think that, you know, we were testing things out. We were yeah. seeing if anybody would even care if we did this podcast. And luckily, a lot of you guys did care. And you listened and supported us and followed us on social media. And so we were able to, you know, beef up the sound, make things sound better, expand our lineup and refine the way that we do things uh, as it is now. So. Because so much has changed mm -hmm. since 2017, not only with us, but the whole world at large That's and you're right. going to hear about all of it as you're journeying through each one of these episodes and now we'll let you venture into king's dominion in your biohazard suit <laughs> with stephen king's 
The Stand. Greetings, constant listeners, and welcome once more to the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast from Consequence of Sound. Today's episode finds us journeying from various parts of the eastern U.S. to make our way towards Hemingford home, and ultimately, for most of us, Boulder, Colorado, as we cover book two of Stephen King's The Stand, complete and uncut. Filthy. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, I actually take offense because uh, I think I would actually end up in Vegas. And well, I don't think there's that's anything why wrong I, I want to so. make a point to say most of us will not. God, are you a Slytherin? I am. A, oh, I am definitely a Slytherin. Cool. Oh, I love. No. I, I'm an Alan Rickman fan. Some I have to be Slytherin. My favorite people are Slytherin. <laughs> I've heard Dra- Draco Malfoy, but Draco Rothman? I mean, this is ridiculous. <laughs> hey, the first Jew at, uh, at uh, Hogwarts. I'll let you make all those comments. Yeah. We're good to go here. But um, <laughs> thanks, everybody, once again for the, uh, the great interaction we keep having with you on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, whether it's through your own personal posts, through messages. We love it when you send these out to us. We try to get back to everybody as, as, as often as we possibly can. Um, you know, we're trying to build a nice little community here, much like... The fine folks in the free zone are trying to do in Boulder. God, you're a regular Randall. I'm ready to go. I feel like I'm living up to Randall's standards right now. Not Randall Flagg, Randall Colburn, who's not here with us today, but will hopefully be back for the next episode. The walking dude is over in Michigan right now. He is with his walking wife. (laughs) That makes Uh, sense, I guess. Yeah, sure. They're both walking. Again, we're covering book two. So if you've not uh, listened to our previous standcast, please make sure to do that. Unless you're dying to get to information about the kid. Um, 108-year-old woman uh, bowel movements and Stu's confusion when it comes to lesbians. That's true. Um, but we will be covering all of that in this, <laughs> in this, epi- in this episode. Uh, but before we get started, let's go ahead and introduce ourselves. I am Justin Gerber, a senior writer at Consequence of Sound. And in front of me is... Allison Shoemaker, also a senior writer at Consequence of Sound. And Allison, um, again, this is your first go-through. Yeah. Have you finished it or are you still... Oh, I'm no, I just started book three. This is exciting. Yeah, so it's happening in real time. This is great. This is, like, I'm sure there are many listeners out there either rereading or reading for the first time, and Allison you know is, on is, your, uh, is on your page. So far, it's been... You guys would be like, oh, no, you'll love Larry eventually. And I'm like, nah. I, 15 minutes later, you know, fast-forwarding, I'm like, oh, no, they were totally... Yeah. <laughs> we were <laughs> like, spoiler-free, but yeah, but yeah. Just, just keep reading. Yeah. So It's a long one, so I, he comes around eventually. He um, does. And also to, in front of me as well, but a little more to my personal West, my true West, my little brother, Mackenzie Gerber. <laughs> Mac, hello. Hi, hi. I'm Mackenzie Gerber, uh, also with Consequence of Sound. And this is also my first time reading The Stand. Yeah. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. This is I very mean... important to point out to a lot of listeners. It's very important. Mac has read all of the Dark Tower books. That's right. But he has not read any other Stephen King books, so he's coming to all these books as a newbie. I mean, he's seen most of the movies, but we want to yeah, really illustrate I've, the I've point. I've seen a, a ton of the movies, and obviously the Stan miniseries was one of the first things that got me into it, but uh, I, I have not read any of the, the other novels other outside of The Dark Tower. Yeah. And it looks like we have our own little division here in the room. Mm. Uh, those that have read it uh, b- multiple times. Yeah, true. And those that are uh, new. So, oh, new and old. Right. New I and like, old. It's good to have fresh takes, fresh opinions, and... Um, mm. Fresh meat, as it fresh were. Fresh meat, sweet treats, and, and fresh meat. Oh. <laughs> um, so, I guess if you guys and girls want to get to it, let's... Well, we skipped um, the man What did we skip here? 
Well, this voice over here is uh, Michael Rothman. <laughs> well, you kind of said that Editor you had read. Oh, you didn't give your introduction. <laughs> I did not fine. give an introduction. Randall, okay. come back to us. <laughs> no, go ahead, Mike, please. Yeah, I'm. My name is Michael Rothman. I'm in a, a, a. I'm the editor in chief of Consequences Sound, and also the uh, stuttering one in the group, um, but not stuttering Bill. So, um, we can continue and uh, keep going down uh, this road towards either Boulder or my favorite place, Sin City. Actually, I, I hate Las Vegas. So, <laughs> I mean, this is purely a joke. I've only been there once and it was uh it was all right well we won't be getting to vegas too much in book two i no. think there's maybe a chapter here or there unfortunately on, yeah. on very much unfortunately as we will discuss <laughs> yes. um uh, upcoming but um even though we're on book two you figure we don't have to talk about any particular hooks because the hook of the book should just be one big hook but as mike has discovered i'm sure as some of you discovered book two in terms of the structure alone is much different from book one and uh, Mike has a couple words to say about a different hook. Ah, yes. Don't you see? Don't you see how clear it all is? Not only can you see the future, you can... I can change it. You can change it exactly. Well, I think book one is all table setting. You know, yep. we see where the virus is going to go, Captain Drips. And we kind of see who the characters are, at least the principals. And we still didn't get to meet a lot of the actual corollary characters that were going to become very fruitful and important as this story goes forward. But one thing that King really doubles down on in book two is the religious aspects of this. Yes. And you get to see um, the inherent morality in everyone, um, specifically um, in three characters. Uh, I mean, you see them all, but really get to see kind of the, the tortured soul aspect of um, Harold Lauder and uh, Needing Cross and, and, mm -hmm. and Larry Underwood also. Um, and, I, and I think that's, you know, it was kind of hinted at that, uh, that this path was already hinted uh, just at the tail end of book one, uh, specifically with like Nick Andrews' dream where you kind of see uh, he's seeing Mother Abigail, but then he's also being haunted by Randall Flagg. And you see this kind of hinted at with all the other principal characters, but it really comes into the, the foreground with when you actually see Nick uh, experience this. And it's also interesting seeing it coming from Nick since he's um, deaf and dumb. And, um, and I think that's, you know, the crutch of this book, uh, the crux of this book is, is really in book two. Um, and you really kind of see just how they kind of split uh, the characters, and I think a lot of them are pretty predictable. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, do is was anyone in terms of their split? Yeah, or like where they were going. I mean, we're, we're, I mean, you two have been reading this, this. This is the first time. Were you surprised by any of the character transitions in terms of what their choices were, like good or bad? Well, to me, yes, I sort of got the sense of where they were all going, but I wouldn't use the word predictable. I would use the word inevitable. Okay. Like it feels like um, there are, there's that great passage where Larry is talking about um, the, the guitarist for Sparks who came through the other side and he's realized that he's come through the other side, but parts of this remain, parts of his previous self, this not very nice guy remain. Mm -hmm. And it seems kind of like at this point they've all been through a trial like everyone every time we get to and that was how they met x y and z that person has been through a trial and either you come through it with some respect for humanity left or a new respect for humanity or you don't which doesn't mean there's not still an internal war but 
not all that long after meeting Nadine, I was like, oh, bad news. Yeah. Really bad yeah. news. Yeah. Like, I, I don't really think, I mean, I think the trajectory is important for every character, especially in book two. But I think it's more of a way, and it's same, it's, it's, I, I think it's coincidental or not very coincidental, actually, that Glenn Bateman is a huge figurehead in book two because he gets to be King's way of kind of channeling the thesis. He's the of, philosophical. He's the philosophical conduit. one. And, oh, yeah. And, and, and this. And, oh, yeah. Go, go no, ahead. but Glenn, and I'll talk about this in book three, but yeah, Glenn becomes like, you know, if Stephen King was in there and he, it's like <laughs> almost like the narrator a little oh, bit, yeah. like, like oh. well, uh, let me lay it out for you here and then, you know, tells you the whole story. But, um, but it's 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 great. I mean, I, lo- I love Glenn. I, I, I love Glenn. Well, <laughs> I, I I only mentioned Glenn just because I think that this is the book where King really starts kind of digging his sinking his teeth into the themes and like what he's trying to say. I mean, I, I think there's there's commentary on the. I think there's a overall commentary on American life by choosing like a small town in Nebraska versus like the kind of sleazy Sin City. And I mean, even way the way he describes Las Vegas kind of points to that fact. That you know, King really is trying to embellish the evils of America and then the good aspects of America, like what what really kind of were the foundations of America, like a small town life, like good people working together for the common good versus you know bad people coming in for their own vices. And I think those are like kind of the split dichotomy. And you know, the at the end of the day, I think he's really trying to comment on like the idea of religion and like why mm-hmm. we're here, like who we are, like what, what paths do we take in this sort of like vessel of our own body. And, you know, for me, uh, I've always believed and I've always argued that I think every war goes back to religion. I really do. I, I think that you can tie pretty much every war that's ever happened back to the religion because, I mean, it, it becomes a matter of who's right and who's wrong. And, uh, you know, you get that when there's that whole theological debate with the committee, these themes come to life. Like, I mean, and, you know, I'm, I have some problems with, with uh, Franny's character where they take, take her, but she actually adds this really great debate in that committee where she calls into question their own idea of attacking flags, saying, well, how, who are we to say that we're right and who are, who's wrong? Like, we're just falling back into our own vices of not on vices, but just our own ways of, of we have to attack this because this is bad. And, you know, and, and I think that that for me, like that kind of summarizes the whole point of book two. Yeah. I mean, again, like the good versus evil aspect, I think it's obviously really comes to its true form in in book three. It it really begins to be addressed here. And now that the apocalypse is, is, I guess, behind us, we're now living in a post-apocalyptic world. Where do we go from here? And he acknowledges religion. Big theme and religion is, prevalent throughout, especially because of the, the major introduction of Mother Abigail and even we'll talk about how Nick is still, despite everything he's seen and, and heard, well, not really heard, but you know what I mean by that. Yeah. Experience. Uh, experience. There you go. Thank you, Alice. Heard in the dream. Well, I but think- my, my issue, we'll get more into this too, is there's too much of a focus on the good. Yeah, I and agree. And I don't think that makes for a compelling narrative continuously mm-hmm. yeah i mean i i, I there's think a balance that's lost i mean i i the the fact that he's you know king is blatantly going out and saying that this is a religious war like i mean and there's even that comment where he says if it hadn't been captain trips it would have been something else that would have taken down the world so clearly it wasn't just this commentary on man-made destruction like this is 
this was supposed to happen. Like the end of the world was supposed to happen. This is supposed to be a fight between God and the devil. And that changes the game. Like book one, you could still make the case that it's not really a religious book. Book two kind of flips the script on that. And I think that is something to kind of keep in mind when we're discussing that today, just because it, it, that was to me a little jarring, you know, because at some point it does actually kind of feel like we're reading like, I mean, like, what's the difference between this and Left Behind? Like, I mean, if, I mean, obviously, there's the difference in writing is much yes. better, much That's better. We can one. talk about Left Behind a little bit too, because I remember when I started reading Left Behind. Shout out to Left Behind and Tim LaFay, whatever that con man's name is. Um, because <laughs> the first Left Behind book, has anybody ever read the Left Behind novels? No, no, okay, I have this not. is very important. This is very interesting too. The first book is actually quite good. It's literally about. It's kind of like what The Leftovers is about. One day, everybody just, well, a lot of people disappear and they're presumed to have gone off to heaven and then the sinners, for however great a sinner you are, is left behind on earth. Um, s- strangely good first novel. And then by the second novel, you notice every five pages, they would talk about how somebody um, has, has come along and, and found God and has been saved. And then by the time you get to book three, it's every three pages where they talk about how important it is to be saved by God. And you realize, oh, this is all just one big, like, it's, 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 it's the long con to make yeah. you either feel guilty or to, to, to force you to convert. And it's, it's garbage. So it's an advertisement for the Catholic Church. I can't speak in the Catholic Church. I'll let Mike, who went to Catholic school, speak on that. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but the thing with this book is... Yes, granted, it's obviously about good and evil, and religion, especially in book two, like Mike said, comes into into this a, a, a quite a big deal, quite quite a bit. But it does not succumb to the uh, the depths that the Left Behind series succumbs to. Right, I think it's it's extremely layered, and even characters like you were saying, like with Nick, mm-hmm. they don't one hundred percent come around to you know like I believe in God, I believe in the devil. You know, they're still in, even though they're in the free zone and they're in that you know pretty much a great person you know not everybody you know is it's not black and white for them and it's still very muddied and you know i also i also kind of like how all the um people that are really great at technology apparently are in like vegas you know like there there are the ones like getting everything back on track and getting the the missiles ready and all that stuff i I always thought that was interesting that some of the more tech tech heavy people were apparently just happened to be in Vegas uh, more so. And they, they kind of make a comment about that. I don't know why. I mean, that's a little bit of a twist, too. You figure that the easy way to go about this would be like all the depraved, lazy losers are going to go to Vegas. And then all like the really smart and up-and-coming right. people are going to go to to Boulder. And that's, as we learned, it's not the case at all. That, that's a little uh, book three preview for you. Yeah. <laughs> well, book three. Teaser alert. We do eventually get to some more interesting aspects of the story. But uh, we'll get back to it. But what's interesting to me is, is that there are characters, like he at least acknowledges that there are characters that, that don't really want to become part of this holy war. Like they don't want to believe it's a holy war. Yeah, right. You know, like there's that, um, there's a great section with the judge and Larry when they're like kind of sitting there on, on the porch and one of the actual rare moments that you kind of really get in touch with the judge because I feel like he's kind of, he's, he's a good supporting character, but I, feel, I still feel he's kind of underwritten, but the judge and, and Larry are talking about the disappearance of Mother Abigail. And, and, and I think this, um, this piece right here um, really kind of says a lot about us as society and like maybe how King views modern society in general with regards to religion. Um, and I think this is what also kind of separates this from, say, like Left Behind. Um, you know, the judge says, perhaps one of the reasons I'm almost glad to have her gone is because I'm such a rational old curmudgeon. I like to creep through my daily round to water my garden. Did you see the way I've brought the begonias back? 
I'm quite proud of that. To read my books, to write my notes from my own book about the plague. I like to do all those things and then have a glass of wine at bedtime and fall asleep with an untroubled mind. Yes, none of us want to see portents and omens, no matter how much we like our ghost stories and the spooky films. None of us want to really see a star in the east or a pillar of fire by night. We want peace and rationality and routine. If we have to see God in the black face of an old woman, it's bound to remind us that there is a devil for every God and our devil may be closer than we like to think. And I, for me, that kind of stuck with me because I, you know, going going to Catholic school and being in a family that really doesn't believe in religion, but I, you know, I have a, a, I have a Jewish father and the, the, that whole culture has always been ingrained in me and I, you know, even looking at you know, like, like a spokesman for the Jewish, uh, uh, like Jewish groups or whatever. But um, I, uh, I, it was always confusing to me of being like, well, what is real? Like, or, you know, clearly there's, it, you know, I was introduced to the idea that there are multiple religions early on. So I've always wondered like, well, if they believe this and someone else believes this too, then, then somebody has to be right. And maybe there is a higher power out there. And, and, and what if you're wrong? And, and, and that whole complicated matter made me just say, I, I don't want to believe in any of it. And I, and, I, and, I, and I admit that. I fully admit that. Although, and as a kid, I did. And now I, you know, we look at science and philosophy and, and all the, the universe and we realize a lot of it is, is speculative <laughs> fiction at the best. Um, but I, I think that, that feeling of not wanting there to be a God because there is a devil and not wanting there to be a heaven because there is a hell and having that risk of, you know, if you don't get in that, you are going to be in here. And I think there's a fear to that. And, and I think that's could be one reason why a lot of people actually do re- end up rejecting religion. Um, the and, black and white of it. All. Yeah. And, and, and I, and I think that's kind of scary. And I, and I, I that, that for me, like in book two, that sort of rejection and acceptance of what Glenn calls the white magic. Cause like, they're like, well, we've gone through all the science. It's now, spiritualism and you could be with it or against it but it's real and it's mm-hmm. happening like that's kind of a scary thought yeah you know yeah and i think it's really interesting that a lot of the people in the town like the judge is even saying right then like he he's happy to just do his daily routine he doesn't really want to think too much about mother abigail being this you know this you know prophet or the voice of god because then he has to think that maybe it's real and maybe there is this bad man across the way so it's almost like you know, even the people that have seen all these things, had these dreams, had these experiences, have actually themselves had these these experiences, are still denying it, are still trying to deny it because it means they have to actually believe in something. Yeah. And uh, so it's really interesting. But again, it's it's super layered and it's not preachy. No. To the point where you're like, oh, I I get it. You know, we need to be good. They don't ever go that far. I feel. I mean, to me. No. Well, some we'll talk about this too, but some people's fates are kind of predestined, which is uh, the, the cruel aspect of of a predetermined religion, I guess, or the narrative. And I yeah, and I, and I we'll definitely talk about that, but I I think that's kind of a problem with the with I have with book two also, yeah. you know, um, because there is like there is a lot of layers and nuance, but I, I do feel, and you kind of hinted at this before, there that there is like a lack of for the other side, mm-hmm. you know, and I, which is something I feel like book one did better, but I mean, I think that's for the next section. Ah, the next section, Mike, do you mean the structure and format? Look at me. Look at me. 
we kind of already tackled some of the themes like religion already. So I guess we can just get right to the structure aspect of the book. And if you look at the first book, the chapters are quite short, uh, ranging between five to maybe 20, 25 pages at most. I mean, there's a couple longer ones, but for the most part, they're pretty short chapters. With book two, especially the first four or five chapters, they're almost short stories at that point. Yeah. I mean, we really stick with these characters for, for a lot of pages. Um, do you feel that that worked better, or do you feel that it was a little jarring and you, were, and you liked the pacing of book one? I, I open the floor to the three of you. I felt like I, I was fine with it because, you know, well, for certain characters. <laughs> because there were some there were some people where you know you'd get into it and you'd want to stick with them like Stu mm -hmm. and Glenn and I, I liked stay, sticking around with them for a while and really getting into the meat of things um, but there were other other sections where I was just like okay let's go like even Larry I love Larry but like all the stuff with, with Joe and, and, and Nadine and I, it was interesting to me but I was like rearing to get back to some of these other characters um, yeah, so Joe, so Joe I, is. Uh, I missed the short, the shorthand uh, uh, chapters, but um, you kind of needed you, you needed it to go there. I personally did not like the longer chapters. I, I I thought that they they gave longer chapters to characters that I just didn't really feel were that compelling. Like, I mean, I I feel like um, you know, the way that he wrote Mother Abigail first off is, is a lot of. Uh, weird things that they go off on with Mother Abigail, but um, I don't know if I needed thirty, nearly thirty pages of walking back and forth between a farm, um, and I, I just didn't really find it that compelling to me. I, I think that even like a lot of the history that she goes that they that he goes back on with her was very, um, it, 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 like, I mean, granted they they capture like some interesting aspects of her her background, but. For the most part, it took it just totally killed the action for me. Where it was just like all of a sudden we're like, okay, we're gonna stop here and we're gonna go back a hundred years ago almost. And it, it, and it was like, oh well, I'm gonna be doing this for the next sixty pages. Like, I mean, that's a sixty-page chapter that's in there. That's yeah, but and maybe Allison might agree with me. But having only seen the miniseries and not having seen it for a while and reading this, I didn't mind that because there's a whole backstory with her that you don't get in that miniseries. And it, I thought it was really interesting. Um, I mean, it, yeah, it slows down for a minute, but uh, I, I, I don't know. What did you think about that? You know, I'm sort of in between. It felt, I, I had the experience reading this that I had when the first time that I read Les Miserables, mm -hmm. um, the uncut version. Oh, yeah. That has um, the kid in it, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, um, when you're reading that, you get to this <laughs> section um, like two thirds of the way through where we spend an insane amount of time, just insane, on battlefields hmm. for a long since fought war, long ago, hmm. right? And it's just because we see the, the character Tenardier and he's uh, robbing corpses. Um, and it's ba backstory, interesting backstory, but oh my God, I, <laughs> I just kept going and going and going. And then I had to just stop and walk away from the book for a while because it, it was like going on a hike and I finally gotten dehydrated and now I need to sit under a tree and drink water and think about something else before I start hiking again. 
And I don't love it when reading starts to feel like a chore. But no. at the same time, I'm really glad I had all that information. So I guess I'm somewhere th- in the middle. And again, you have not even seen the miniseries for no. the Sam Allison, nope. correct? No, this story this is, is brand totally new to fresh me. to you. Yeah. Oh, wow. I think for me... My I, knowledge of the miniseries is that Gary Sinise was in it. End of list. Which is oh. enough reason to see it. Gary Sinise is, is, is great. Actually. I can't wait to see it. I'm excited. Um, it's, it's, it's good, in my opinion. It still holds up. Um, there's some data problems, obviously. We'll talk about that in our, I guess, our fourth stand episode, which fourth we'll be covering stand. the... The miniseries adaptation. And the comics. And the comics. And so. we'll be casting our own new stand. Oh, I yeah. have thoughts. So. Yeah, it's, that's yeah. Be, it'll be a little more modern, we, we believe. Um, the Mother Abigail chapter for me, having seen the miniseries a million times, in which, honestly, they kind of dilute that character to the magical Negro stereotype. Yeah, and that's my that was my problem in the it, book still, though. But I think they it, it, that doesn't happen for me in the book. Because you're, it, this isn't like Bagger Vance showing up on the greens, you know. Now we have the 108 year old history of this, essentially just this normal African American woman who they literally talk about. Her. She shits like everybody else. They yeah, talk about that. That's enough. She, she struggles to go to another farm to to kill chickens just to get by. She has has had children. Who have died before her? She's been married several times. She she sings at parties and you know is surprisingly accepted. She has her own fears and doubts, and she the, the movie kind of has it where she's always known this is going to happen in a way, and and she's always been God's vessel. But in the book, they say like it wasn't until I guess two years before the um, the plague starts, right, where she finally gets that. So I feel like for me. Granted, don't get me wrong, Mike. I agree with you that they they could have cut out thirty pages. Of yeah, the chapter. that was my, my my point. It's not that yeah. I don't. I'm, it's not that I'm uninterested with her history. It was more along the lines of like, did you need to spend this much time to go into it? I, yeah. I, I just I, I felt like it could have been a little tighter to the point where it, it just you know because we've read short stories of his. I mean, in Night Shift oh, yeah. alone, where we've get a good history i mean look at even jerusalem's lot like he's able to knock out a pretty good history within a short span and with her i just felt that there was so much like this focus on a lot of mundanities that didn't really add up to me from for for some you know yeah i think that i appreciated all the history and backstory because it does show you that she is a human at the end of the day yeah you know i like like that yeah and which explains a lot about her character and why she you know you know tracks off and stuff but I do feel like they probably could have done it in a in a split up way. You know, they could have cut in there, and we could have seen Larry for a little while, and then come back to her. And I think it would have helped push things along a little bit more. But um, you know, when King starts writing, it's hard for him to stop. Uh, stop <laughs> As Doubleday you know? tried to stop him from writing by by eliminating all those pages. <laughs> That's but true. You know, when when you get popular, do whatever you want to do, Uncle Stevie. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess my problem with all of book two, and it kind of ties into abigail's chapter is it's just overwriting you know and 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 it's it's there's i mean there's some overwriting in here where he you could even tell he almost doesn't even trust the readers Mm -hmm. sometimes where he has to just kind of he you know describes this entire visual metaphor and then at the end of it will explain the visual metaphor and it's just like wait what are you doing and i I guarantee if you would have cut some of that out you would knock out at least like 30 pages in this book. You know, it feels like um, the Stephen King who was writing this book didn't realize that he was as good a writer as he is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so 
He just keeps making sure yeah. that his ideas are clear when they're already fucking clear. Yeah. yeah. Um, because when I had a similar reaction, Mike, but part of what I kept thinking, as much as I was enjoying it and as much as I as I enjoyed book one, um, I just kept thinking, oh, well, the book could have just opened here. Oh, well, the book could have just opened here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, well, the book could have just opened here. And when I started book two and there was that refrain every time they're meeting someone, it's like, God, this feels like the beginning of a book. Yeah. You know, it, how interesting would it have been? And I wouldn't want to lose any of this writing. But if the first scene in the book had been the gas station and then we jumped to everybody's dead and when we first meet Fran, she's digging the graves and when we first meet Stu, he's breaking out of the center and like all of those, that just would have been really scary and I would have been so sad to lose the rest of the writing, but... I don't know. It to feels a point, like... I mean, you you would have missed the the epic scope, I guess, of it. Oh, I would have but... missed the like the individual chapters. Yes. Like all those vignettes are so good, and yet, especially at the beginning of book two, I kept thinking, "Wow, so this is actually the start of the book." Great. Yeah. Okay. Well, the crazy thing about sorry, Matt, but the, the thing is, like those vignettes, for instance, they were cut out of the original version, and sure. those are some of my favorite moments of the whole thing. And again, we have to think about the fact that. He was heavily influenced by Lord of the Rings, which we discussed in our previous stand episode. And I almost feel like he's, I've got to make this long. I've got to stretch this out. It's got to, you've got to feel the weight of it. But, to, but you know, at what cost? Well, I, I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that the point of view. I mean, he, he needs to, there's this weird struggle of how big do you go. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like once he did those plague chapters, and then also once you get the government involved, your scope's pretty wide. And, and especially when you have a character like Randall Flagg, who's the eye, which if you want to talk about Lord oh, of the Rings That's, a, that's another issue I have. Um, but it, it, it becomes a battle of, of, of how small do you go and how big do you go. And in and I, and I I could see the conflict in at the typewriter for him of how is the scope going to impact how you relate to the characters because you know is it better to not know as much as the readers or i mean as the characters so that you can kind of feel their realizations and you can feel their horror also or is it better to know more than the characters so that you can kind of anticipate what's going to be going down the road for them and i think that's always been just based on the books that we've already read on this podcast that's kind of been king's forte is having you be three or four steps ahead of the, you know, the, the, the characters. I mean, that's why he does those foreshadowing stingers. Yeah. And, and I think that the, the main issue with this is uh, he spends so much time trying to show us that um, just how easily we could, we could go back and do the same exact things and make the same exact mistakes. Mm-hmm. But it's like 600 something, you know, it's like, yeah. it's a ton of time. And, you know, it's a, a lot of town meetings. And I'm like, you could have done that in like one town meeting, you know, just showing like everybody just volatilely like, you know, having these conversations and, and you're like, okay, yeah, we could easily just come back to it. Like we're turning the, the power back on, we're doing this. And you know, how long before we start, you know, going down the same route, it just, he just over explains it. I feel, you know, it just goes on and on. And obviously, you know, like double day, you guys were saying in the first episode, you know, I was listening to it cause I wasn't able to be there. Um, you know, trying to get them to cut it and, and this and that. And I don't know, maybe some of maybe, Book two was a lot shorter and the uncut version. I, I, I mean, not the uncut, but the cut version. Uh, I'd be interested if, if any uh, fans out there know if there were things that were added back in after the fact for book two. The kid, definitely, right? The kid, well, the entire kid chapter is not in the original novel. Well, another thing with the kid is that I, I didn't mind that chapter because we finally got away again from the free zone. 
because we just never go to Vegas for like the entire book too, which I think is a huge problem because they never really, you know, you spend all this time with like Lloyd and some of these other people that end up in Vegas. And then we don't get to continue building their characters for like half the, the book. And I think it's a missed opportunity because for something that isn't really trying to take a huge stance and saying things are black and white, they could have shown that, you know, Lloyd and all these people that are in Vegas, maybe they're dealing with the same things and having the same grapples. And some of them maybe want to come over to, to, to Boulder and vice versa. And, you know, you get a taste of that in book three, but I really feel like had they littered book two with that, it would have been a little more interesting, I think, all the way through. And it's also kind of problematic in the sense that the only point of view you get of Vegas is the most unreliable narrator in the entire book and is trash can man mm -hmm. i mean he's the only person you get to see vegas through and he's crazy yeah. like he's he's literally the craziest character in the book i mean you really think even over flag and 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 i and i think that's weird i mean you have a character like lloyd already that's in there and so why wouldn't you use him to your advantage i agree with you i mean I, and that's and it's weird because the beginning of book two does feel like it's going to be you know oscillating back and forth between these two things and all of a sudden they just get to boulder and you're like oh I guess Harold and Nadine's enough to show the evil point it's, of view. And it's, and it's not. Like, and it's, it's not. not. Um, when I, just now, I was thinking about my reactions and where I got sort of frustrated and um, what what else, what other culturally is out there where I have a similar level of frustration and enjoyment. And there isn't anything where it's both. Um, <laughs> but I do think it's appropriate that Stephen King is one of the people left in the world who's still enjoying The Walking Dead. Yeah. Um, because it feels yes. a little bit like that. Like we're stuck with this group of people and they're stuck. But instead of exploring that situation with some sort of fresh perspective, it just, there's a looming menace and then it's constant turmoil but not really and i it just really for and of course the characters here are, are much more finely drawn mm -hmm. um the writing is better but i just i was on his twitter account when we were recording evil tweets earlier this week it's like oh yeah so stephen king is really still watching the walking dead yeah that's yeah. that is stephen that's a good king point. is one of the people still watching the walking dead and it feels a little bit like this only this is a lot better but well, oh, similar yeah. problems. I, I, I just hopped off for Walking Dead because I thought this season was just fucking abysmal. I'm proud to always, every episode I feel like I have to mention the fact that I jumped off at the beginning of season two. Okay. I don't like The Walking Dead. You gave up when F Darabont was still involved though, so. No, he was gone by the time episode six came out. Hey, you know, around. sometimes oh. you need to turn your brain off. And King's, you know, writing all these heavy books. That's you true. just gotta Literally go watch heavy. something you just can just check out. You I'd know? like to introduce you to all the other great TV that you can watch and turn your brain <laughs> yeah, off for. Yeah. There's lots of it. Allison, can you give us an example of one of those shows? Uh, well, it's not The Handmaid's Tale. Can't turn your brain off when you're watching that. No, no, no. no. How about. Um, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. You could do that. And that's on Netflix, I believe, That right one's now. really wonderful. Yeah, both seasons are on Netflix. You could watch uh, Designated Survivor, which is terrible, but it's a completely different kind of terrible. Kiefer. It's like yeah, an earnest Kiefer. terrible. <laughs> yeah, oh, except for now they've started ripping off The West Wing. You could watch The West Wing! Oh, Go back West, and watch uh, seven seasons of The West Wing. You hey, know, we're you in know. the golden age of television, if you haven't heard already. So... Trash television's at its peak, and so There's is plenty. Prestige. You're the worst. You can. Oh, yeah, Ooh, no, you're, you're the worst. Love you're the worst. Love you. Yeah. I, lo I love FX. Anything with FX. If it, if I only had to pick one network for the rest of uh, the year, I think it would probably go to FX. <laughs> the year. I think, I think that's you know, it. I think the this, year. I think this decade belongs to FX. Yeah, in terms absolutely. Of the quality programming. Although you know what, of all networks, the CW is creeping. 
Like slowly but surely. They've got the comic book thing down first they of all. Do, crazy ex girlfriend. All those are getting better. They've got Crazy Ex Girlfriend. They've got Jane the Virgin. It's like How long before they bring back Buffy? I you know I don't what? I think they will. The ending so. of that series. The, the, series, the series itself should have ended. Hi, everybody. This is the Stephen I, King podcast, by the way. But no, the <laughs> ser- that, that should have ended probably ep- a season five. But I think the last shot and sequence in Buffy the Vampire Slayer is as perfect an ending as, as a capper as you're going to get. And I do not think they ever have to bring that show back. Well, Whedon's working on a new show right now, isn't he? Yeah, I don't think that's going to... If Joss yeah. Whedon was going to find a network to help him bring a show back, it wouldn't be Buffy. It would be Firefly. Yeah, yeah that's They'd true. They'd find actually. a way to bring back Firefly. Well, we might as well get back to the stand book too, I guess. But um, Yeah, I mean, if, if we are talking about structure. And, mm-hmm. and and I agree with you. Going back to the Walking Dead uh, analysis. So I, the Walking I, Dead I, is how yeah. we start talking yeah, about right. yeah. <laughs> the, oh, the Walking Dead is to blame for a lot of bad television and... And, and, and rants and on the uh, podcast and here. Yeah, I, I, my, my problem with... Uh, is exactly that is that there is no real dichotomy in book two and and once they get to boulder it just ends like it, it just is you're stuck there i got claustrophobic even. well they try to make the main you know thing that's going on is like the big mystery about harold and like like his intentions and and they try to make the driving force like Harold and, and Nadine and like that's interesting enough to stay in Boulder and like how are they going to mess things up but it's just not because like they've already made Harold just I mean Harold's a very interesting character and I like that but all Harold does and Nadine do remind me that we have like Lloyd and we have these other characters that I'm way more interested in mm-hmm. and they just don't use them until later on. See, I I don't know. I disagree. I, I think Harold's the only thing that that's interesting to me in book two because I his struggle in in book two feels the, is like the most nuanced thing. I would agree more on Nadine because I feel like they they rob her of any sort of choice. But well, yeah, um, my, my my thing. I agree with you in the sense though that like I I don't think it should have been all they should he, he should have leaned all on them. Well, I, no, I, you know I think that I think they're a good example of the struggle of being good and evil but that's not enough you need still need the other side yes and i think again i I like their story but they do too much like they drag it out yeah they do the whole uh you know uh, maybe you know the ledger and all that stuff and it's like a lot of to do and we could have just skipped all that and just gotten right to it Mm -hmm. and still had the same thing because they still, you know, make all the same decisions. You know, we did the whole thing where Larry and, and Franny are trying to find the look for the legend. Inspector all Underwood. Yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah. Inspector Underwood. Well, oh, I, I just feel like, you know, and that's and that's something that they they did cut, you know, from the miniseries. But like, in a good way. Oh, you, did, you you mean you didn't want to have a, a perfunctory a loose stone that literally every character well, is the, able to uh, find? That's yeah. the thing with with book two. I felt. I mean, listen. I know that Stu and Franny and Glenn and Harold and their and their group. I forgot the two people they met. Um, one of them dies and then the other person you know, kills himself. That's obviously horrible. But I do feel for the most part, once book two begins, there's just not a lot of issues that these people have to overcome. It just seems like everything kind of starts to come really easy for them on their way to Boulder in a lot of ways. I mean, we'll talk about the zoo, um, obviously. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's in the cemetery but for sure. I just feel like the conflict and the uncertainty of what's going to happen to these people and how they're going to deal with it of book one that tension is gone for the most part in book two, and especially when they get to the, the back end of book two. 
because like you said, once they get to Boulder, the suspense is gone. And now it's just a whole bunch of back padding and, hey, come over, my, come over to my apartment or house for a beer. We'll get the sternos out and we'll, we'll have a little cookout. Like, well, this seems awfully easy, easy now for these people. Well, and, and that just a- didn't really make a lot. It didn't make for a compelling read for me at all in book two. And it really, again, like I, I thought the short stories for the most part were still pretty interesting. But I'm telling you, those last 200, 300 pages in Boulder are just free zone meetings and ad hoc committees. And I don't care about that. Well, I don't care. There's a there's a character if we're likening this to Lord of the Rings there's a character in oh, Lord God. of the Rings that Justin hates uh, and uh, you want what's his name Justin? oh is it Tom Bombadil Tom, yes Alice <laughs> right. I would liken much. it to right. Bombadil I would liken it to that it's a, it's like a stopping oh. point like like the, the best thing about this book uh, all the way through are, is the sections of the journey everyone's journey to Boulder. And then we pick up on another journey later on, which ultimately becomes extremely interesting again. That's in book three. But when we hit Boulder, it just stops. And it's like when the group hits Bombadil, and then we Thank just get like, sitting there at Bombadil for... Well, the, the problem with like, the Rings have, I have still not finished the, the Fellowship of the Ring because about 100 pages in, we're talking to Tom Bombadil and his bumbling, foolish self, <laughs> balancing... like cookies and tea on his head or whatever the hell he's doing over there for like 50, 60 pages. You know, normally... Like, get me out of here. I would never suggest an abridged version. In fact, there are two <laughs> books where I think it's worth... If you're struggling, it's worth reading the abridged version. Hmm. One is Lame as a Rob. No, oh, yes. The other is The Fellowship of the Ring. Yeah. It's... Because I actually like the Tom Bombadil section by itself. But whoo boy. Oh yeah. It really does. It's, it's just like it's like a tree well, in the middle of the in road. In terms of the narrative for that, it's like okay, we're we're in a, we're in a real time crush here, you know. We've got to we've got to get rid of this ring. We got to get going. Oh, let's just talk to Tom Bombadil who can also solve all your problems but is afraid to leave the ah, I I will Anyways, I could talk yeah. for hours about my disdain for Tom Bombadil. I could do it, but I'm not going to. Oh, there's going to be a riot in the comments oh. section. You know what? That's fine. Come at me, you, you bombadil heads. But you I'm know, ready for it's it. funny because, like, you know, you could say the same thing to Mother Abigail. I feel like a lot of people put her up on a pedestal and think that she's going to be the one to solve the problems. And then she, you know, doesn't leave. But she's also the reason why everybody comes. She's the conduit. She is the reason why everybody comes. Right. Bombadil's just there to be yet. like, oh, I'm such a fucking moron. Look at me. Bombadil's you know? a little bit more like the kid. Just kind of shows up out of nowhere and then uh, sticks it's, around it, I mean, it says while. a lot that Peter Jackson still would not include Tom Bombadil. Not only in the theatrical version, <laughs> but in true. like the three or four hour versions. Wait, wait, still he really in the room didn't? for Tom Bombadil. What? He didn't? Bombadil's no. not no, any no, of the... Although I like to daydream about who he would have cast. Oh, God. It would have been like, what's his name? He plays... Oh, he's been in everything. He's uh, he's uh, Ru- He's um. Oh God, now I feel like I'm an for just right a now. second. I thought How you were going to say RuPaul, and I would be so on RuPaul. Hey, you know RuPaul. what? RuPaul. That would have been it. That, hey, RuPaul. Progressive Lord of the Rings. Are you thinking like of Jim uh, Broadbent? Jim Broadbent. There you go. That's a good example. Yeah, that, that is a good, good example. Somebody like a real red nose, you know, that type of thing. <laughs> Somebody who's there to just stop the story, I guess, in a lot of ways. Brendan Gleeson? Brendan Gleeson? Yeah, he's oh, yeah. maybe too tough. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. We could now we're the fact that we're fantasy casting for freaking I mean, Tom, Tom Bombadil, Bombadil. Is disturbing. Oh god. Enough. Thank you, Paul. Um where, where were we, everybody? <laughs> we, we were talking about the stand. Structure. We were just we're still in structure and format. Yeah. Just chatting about how it just kind of stops. It slows down a little too much and we spend a little bit too much time and I think honestly it's kind of purposeful because 
everybody starts getting a little complacent and a little bit like, okay, things are back to normal here. And they kind of, yeah. and again, like that's why the judge mentions and that's why Glenn and they, they talk about, they don't want to, they don't want to come to terms with the fact that there is someone in the West that they need to worry about. Like they're just worrying about getting the power on and trying to create life as is. And then, and even mother Abigail has to bring it back around and be like, Hey, like we still got to deal with this guy. Well, I mean, they're enjoying their utopia and I get the whole, that they want everybody to seem comfortable. I, like I get the that. survivors in the prison. Yeah. And I think that's, and that's my main problem with walking dead as well. <laughs> bring <laughs> back to that again. Was that no, is that every time that show gets interesting and they start really pushing the envelope, they meet another group of people or, you know, that never experienced it before. And then we have to see them make all the same mistakes and the stupid things happen, you know. Oh, are they and, gonna be trusting again? And yeah. then is Rick gonna make a terrible choice? Mm. Then is he gonna be confronted by the reality of his actions? Exactly. And I think, you know, learn from the <laughs> learn from the Stan's mistake. Like don't stick too long in this little utopia. Like let's move, let's move forward, keep it going. I mean, I won't get into spoilers, but there's a very easy solve to book two. And you just bring forward some of the Vegas chapters of book three and put them into book two. If you break it up a little bit more, if you just have a little bit more of the West in book two, I That's, feel like let's, is, I don't know. I wonder, you, you would all know, um, or you'd be more likely to know than me. Has anybody does, did, does done like a suggested cut that brings forward chunks of book three into book two? Uh, there isn't, but, uh, you know, there is someone that I always champion that does, uh, fan cuts all the time. Uh, Mr. Topher Grace and, um, <laughs> Topher, <laughs> Topher, if you're Topher hearing this, I, I, I'm assuming that Topher I'm listens just cause you know, I'm going to tweet him all the time. Yeah. Well, we've we've talked me, about Topher before. What made me think of it is, um, it's very easy to find a, a suggested reading order for, I forget which two, but two of the books in uh, Song of Ice and Fire. Mm -hmm. um, and mm. it's the two books where they split, where Martin split the characters. So That's there's the, the, like, fourth the book, Tyrion I book, right? Yeah. Um, and you spend one book without seeing any of Tyrion or Arya. Yes. And then one book with, and this is the way I think of it, because who wants to read a Game of Thrones book without, without either Tyrion or yeah. Arya, right? Um, and so you can go back and have the two books in front of you and someone has worked out, read this chapter, this chapter, this chapter, then from this book, then from this book, then from this book. And it's much more, it's a much more pleasurable read. And it's, and it's an easy thing to do. It's literally just cut and paste. It's not like you have to yeah. say like, oh, halfway through chapter 63. No, it's chapter 63. We put it in here. And I think that would help because I do think the fact, to your point, I think it was Mac, that they are just, they get kind of complacent mm -hmm. is really important. It's yes. just not as entertaining a read because the it, both they and the book lose momentum as opposed to just the group losing momentum. Uh, the problem with that though is that and and because you haven't read it yet, you haven't gone to book three. I have. I finished it now. Um, there still isn't enough in book three to filter into book two without having nothing in Vegas in book three. You know what I mean? Because they just th th there's not enough meat there. And I think the the major disservice that I think that it does, and I'm like tearing this down. I love the, I love the book, but. I'm tearing it down because I think that it does a major disservice to it's not black and white. Not every single, every single human being in Vegas is this terrible human being. No, they're not. Like, no, there are some pretty awful people over there, Obviously, but they go out of their way to say, and, and, and you see some of that in book three, but that there are just like, like kind of normal people that, you know, they just happen to, to be, you know, probably sinners well, and they you know generally believed flag had more going on than, I don't know. It, it's well, not you, as cut and dry. Well, you see some of that in the trash can man, um, you know, chapter because he goes to Vegas and he talks about, you know, he sees everyone at the diner and yeah. they're all eating together. Um, again, unreliable, unreliable narrator. Um, but 
um, you do see some of them talking and they're chummy and then you see the crucifixion. But it's almost as if just like King is saying, well, this is it. This is all that happens here. And I don't know. Did you have something? That yeah, you I mean, the thing is, Mike, and, and this is Randall's favorite character, I think, or maybe even yours, Mike, uh, in book one is is Lloyd. And we spend so much time with Lloyd. And again, I think that that whole section with this lawyer is totally superfluous. And yeah. Cut that out. We're, we're spending so much time with Lloyd in book one. And we and now all he is is a side character for the Trash Can Man story in book two. Why? Like, I don't yeah. understand why. You, you, first of all, you've got a great, reliable bird's eye view mm-hmm. into what's going on in, in Vegas, which is just uh, look. I, I'm much more interested in these in the Vegas people at this point of the story when I'm reading it. Why isn't Lloyd in more of book two? It's just it's that's the question. I don't, I don't know. know. Well, you have to ask. It's a simple question. I mean, how hard of it uh, of a choice is it to you know? Narratively speaking, how easy it to say is it to say, are you good or are you bad? Yeah. For, for, for you just answer, yes, I'm good. It's so much more interesting to say, yes, I'm bad. Like in terms of writing wise, like to, to, when somebody says, yes, I'm bad, that's far more interesting than someone saying, yes, I'm good. And we're seeing a lot of yes, I'm goods. And there's no, like you see a few people that say, yes, I'm bad. And, and, and you just don't get that. Evo- like you get the evolution with Harold and Nadine. That's fine. But you don't know the ramifications. I mean, you don't really get the ramifications of the bad and like what the kind of regret. Like you kind of get glimpses of it. Well, and I think, and like Allison said, like the inevitable thing about Harold and Nadine is that you pretty much know they're going to go bad. So there isn't like this, like, well, maybe they're going to be good, you know, in in book two. You're You're not ever really thinking, well, maybe they'll come around. And they try to do that with Harold a little bit. But you pretty much know they're they're gonna go bad. So with characters like Lloyd, who are pretty much just bad, to see him have like faltering things, and and I don't want to get into book three too much. Yeah. But to see that, it's just it's more interesting to me to see someone that is already bad having some doubts, yeah. and you know what I mean. But again, but I, I think even structure and format wise, there are other problems in this book. Yeah. Um. You know, I, I the the whole Franny's diary thing is just oh God. absolutely ridiculous Ooh. because. I mean, there, there are sections in there where, I mean, she, when they're talking about the Glenn's uh, Staunton digression and they're using, like, he's using, like, um, uh, uh, what is it, um, variables and percentages and, and, and the, the idea that she's remembering all this, I mean, I can't, I can't even remember people's phone numbers, let alone, like, you know, a, a long 20 minute digression on, on, on philosophical politics of just like the percentages of survivors on a plane. Like, I mean, that's, that's insane. And it's just, unbe- it's, it's very Franny's unbelievable. He's got a memory like our, our own Dan Caffrey. No joke. Shot, but right? the thing is, if, if, it, if the whole book was just from the perspective of the person living it, if it was first person, that's one thing you, you, you forgive those digressions, but the fact that we've built it up with, with King telling the story and now, we're reading Fran's diary for some reason. I don't even know why that was necessary. I guess it was a way to kind of speed up that chapter, but it's just such an unbelievability that she would memorize yeah. <laughs> all these long monologues. I mean, these are like page worthy monologues that she's just remembering everything, like start to finish. I don't know. I mean, it's that, one... yeah. And that was that, 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 that kind of took me out of it too. I mean, it's one thing to have a recorded deposition, which they, I guess they do when they're doing meetings, yes. like the meeting minutes. Cause I think they do mention that they're recording it. Um, but when you do go into the diaries, it's, it's just, it's like, it's, this is too unrealistic. And, and also they kind of, they kind of weaken her character in my, in my opinion. We'll get into that in zeros and villains in a second, but 
just her voice in, in the diaries just felt uh, a little too easy for me. But um, we'll go into that in a second. But there there are other things that I, uh, in terms of like um, overwriting um, that that does work. Like I think that there's there's a section where um, Larry's talking about uh, like the monkey house smell at the zoo mm-hmm. and how um, he was, you know, how when he went there with his mother, his mother, how he got used to the smell. And, and, um, and then when he, you know, his mother acknowledged that there was a smell in the monkey house, he remembered it again. And, and, and it's a little short story. And in, in, in that situation, it works um, because it, it, it adds a little bit more to his character. It doesn't feel like this kind of detour. Um, but there's a lot of like clumsy overwriting that 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 and, and and a lot of like clumsy foreshadowing that just like it, it makes this this a slog. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like insufferable at some points. Like, um, and 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 there's also a lot of uh, um, just like awful and clumsy exchanges too. I mean, I'm, again, I'm not trying to rag on this book. Well, it's like crazy. I, I, mean, I mean, for me, it's easily the least of the three. Three oh, books easily. in the stand, without question. For me. I mean, look at this one. This is here's here's one exchange that I I, I was cracking up at. Um, uh, Ralph is Ralph, there. It's it's this the it's a committee. The committee is talking all amongst each other, and Ralph goes, "I got no sympathy, none." Fran, come on, Ralph. Everybody knows alcoholism is a disease. Ralph, disease my ass. It's getting sloppo. That's what it is. Stu, and you're both out of order. Come on, you two, pipe down. Like, who cares? Well, it's not even just, it's just like, who, like, come on, Ralph. Everybody knows alcoholism is a disease. It's just, it, oh, it seems too, yeah. so like, like they're reading a script from an afternoon special or something. It, it's just like little, it's it just ways to get the, the points across sometimes or just, it's just, I don't know. It relies way too much on, on uh, over, overtelling and oversharing um, that I just got ridiculous. I mean, but. Again, there are some great stuff. I mean, there I do love. Um, um, I like the Kojak chapter. <laughs> yeah, you know, I really want to speak to that too, Allison. It, it's listening to you talk about that, Mike. It occurs to me that the most concise way I think to sum up that problem is that most writers who who do shitty writing have the show don't tell problem, mm-hmm. where they just mm-hmm. tell. But Stephen King shows. And then he waits for a minute, and then he decides you haven't figured it out. And yeah. then he tells. Yes. He shows and tells. And this is a thirty-year-old. Re- he was only thirty when he wrote this. I know it's that's just, insane. Uh, that makes me want to like choke oh on my own tongue. And it's oh. also one of it's those nuts. He's yeah. so good. Yeah, but it's also one of those things where, you know, it, it, when we were reading uh, Night Shift, a lot of those stories are like great, mm-hmm. and then he like really explains the ending with like the black magic stuff. Yeah. And it's almost like he doesn't trust. The audience is going to get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and and maybe back then people weren't reading these things like we are now and having, you know, five hour podcasts and discussing it in depth. But <laughs> well, they definitely weren't doing podcasts. <laughs> that's very true. But I will I will say like it was I, called radio. If right? I was right. him and <laughs> I was worried about people not maybe they're not getting this. Mm-hmm. But this is after he's finished writing, you know, The Shining and all these other books that, and that have been received really well. So I, why he would think that people need to be, that this needs to be spelled out, especially like if people aren't getting it, they're not going to continue to read the 1400 page book. Yeah, either. Know. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like they're, they're going to get it and they're following it. I mean, look at this. This is, this is a section that, that goes right after Abigail has this, um, horrific dream with like chickens and weasels and, and, and everything. It's, uh, on page 891, in the uh, 
Anchor Books edition, which came out recently. <laughs> Mike that, loves the Anchor Books that, edition. That's the, the one with all the dead yeah, people in the, the road. The dead people on the road. That That's reminds right. me of World War II. Yes. Um, <laughs> he, he writes, but she was so terrified, not for the people around her, which were represented in her dream by the chickens in the sack. But <laughs> we, got, <laughs> we got the representation. Like, I mean, like, it's like, what are you writing? A college uh, English 101 page? You don't need to tell that. Like, we get it, you know? Um, but whatever. But it, there is... Um, there is also uh, a few dated references that I noticed mm. that oh. in here that that continued because I'd like to point that out. Neil Diamond S. Um, well, there's a mention of the recession uh, in on page 580. I don't remember any recession happening in the, the well because in the yeah, yeah, 70s, 70s would have been the whole gas the crisis gas crisis too. yeah um, which seemed Good like point. that was a carryover. Um, mm-hmm. The way that they mentioned the who on page 657 uh, seems as if it, they were still kind of like a new thing and. Uh, well, maybe they were just a big fan of the anniversary where um, Phil Collins joined in and, and Roger Daltrey wore that jean jacket. I remember watching HBO like, what the hell is going hey, on here? By the time 1990 rolled around, uh, Eminence Front had, was pretty old hey, at that point. Yeah. And that was like, their last big single. Um, and then there's also mention about the judges, the judge being uh, a, like around in practice during the 50s before he retired. And I feel like that... Hmm. was kind of a, a distance 40 years is a long time to be maybe he's retired. 90 in this yeah, driving right. around yeah. trying to get maybe. To, who knows but i you know and again i don't want to be too negative on this because it's stephen king and you know we love king but um there are some sections that i thought were really clever like i i, I thought that the way he did the timestamps, you know like oh on this day this is when larry found rita's dead body and you know like this is what trash is doing at this point like where you kind of get where where you kind of get a good timeline of where everyone is. Um, you know, he does that um, a few times, actually. Um, it, in the beginning of some chapters, well, he'll let you know when this took place and give you a kind of reference for when a, what a character was doing what, that you just read. So you knew, like, that this wasn't happening, like, days and days later. It was actually, we're actually going back in time a little bit. So yeah, I that, was, that was that. all right, you know? Yeah, because I tend to, I, you know, when I'm reading, I'm, I tend to be like, okay, this happened. Okay, now we're with these people, and that's what's happening next. And that's not always the case, you know. Maybe this is happening before the events of this happened. Yeah. And so yeah, I know I do appreciate that because it, it kind of it fleshes out the world in a way that makes it a little bit more, uh, uh, you know, forty for me, I guess. Um, did you guys have anything else to say about the structure or the themes or anything about book two? I just want to say, in case it isn't clear, that as hard as we just were on this book, that we all still really enjoyed it. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, I, it wasn't quite as page turny for me as book one was, mm-hmm. but I'm just as excited to keep reading, and I still think it's very finely wrought. It's just and I, I think a little, a, there's some fat that could be true. There is definitely some fat. Doubleday, once again, had a pretty good point uh, years ago when they were trying to edit this book down and, and did for a little while. Well, I think Mike will agree that book three makes up for a lot of oh, the problems with book two. So we I, rest assured, um, the good is about to come back. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah, I mean, and, and a and solid again, good is about to come back. And, and to throw you know a bone again, I I think there are many bones. Um, there there are a lot of really gorgeous. There is a lot of gorgeous prose in book two, mm-hmm. and I mean I, I especially love how deep we get into Harold's mind. Like, and, and that's I want to talk about him in in. And what section is that, Mike? Uh, zeros and villains. I'm gonna have to kill this fucking clown. Welcome to the Losers Club, asshole! So we meet a lot of people, good and bad, in book one. So you figure, okay, these are the people we're gonna have the rest of the way. Not so fast, because there are quite a few people introduced in book two who are interesting, and some of them maybe not so interesting. 
But we're going to talk about some of those new characters, but we're also going to talk about uh, what the characters are, what specific characters are going through in book two. And, you know, is it interesting? I don't know. Is it interesting? Our favorites, our least favorites. Yeah, exactly. So who wants to lead this one off? Anybody? Oh, can I go into Julie Lowry? How about we get that? Let's get, way? which is I think the beginning of book two is, is yeah. the Nick, Tom, okay. and Julie Lowry. Is, so yeah. this will be part one of your rotating <laughs> panel of female guests who is just me's feminist variety hour. Um, the FVH. Julie Lowry is a piece of shit. And I'm not <laughs> talking about the character a, a, as a human, although she's also obviously a piece of shit. Yeah. Yeah. Talking about the way that that character is developed. I think... That and we'll talk about this more in the section, I think. But that King is such a good writer that he gets away with some kind of harmful tropes or stereotypes, and not in every case, as I'm also sure we'll talk about. But in this one, the like oversexed teenager who you can tell is bad because she's also kind of ugly, even though she's slutty, and oh, and the miss. So hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Does not mean, oh, you won't sleep with me. I'm going to shoot a gun at you. That's absolutely not what that <laughs> phrase means. And I just, that character is, I was so angry. I had to stop and step away for a while. And of course, she has to, she's like the one who's trying to corrupt our young, her, courageous Nick yes. Andros. Or uh, innocent Nick Andros, you know. Which, which, by the way, who else was shocked that Andros actually sleeps with her, though? Yeah, it seemed incredibly out of character. Yeah, well, you know, little... when Nick's looking in the mirror and he has like no teeth. And, you know, <laughs> I don't know why she was interested in him at this scene. It just, it's, 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 well, it's, 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 it's a nut scene. And it just, it's not believable Does on any front. Does this happen in the miniseries? It, well, the, the, well, there's an the introduction, but yeah. not, not the... The, not the pound cake. Okay. <laughs> exactly. He he says no. They kind yeah. of keep him like he's like no. I don't think so. I mean, there's and, probably a reason about that for, that we'll get into when we are getting the uh, with with, with, uh, with Rob Lowe with Rob Lowe and yeah. underage girls. We don't want to talk about that. Uh, right yeah. now. Oh boy. <laughs> well, um, the character, in addition to being not very well written, although there are moments in that sequence that I think are, are very well done and deeply unsettling. Her abruptly telling Tom that the Pepto Bismol is poisonous yeah. is horrific. It's the, one of those like tiny injustices that make the world such a shitty and terrible yes. place that someone would do something like that for their own amusement. So it's not that I don't think that there are moments in it that are good, but she seems to serve in this book mm -hmm. basically no function other than to just paint the picture of an oversexed teenager who is awful. And yeah. it just doesn't... Get, you know what? There are some teenage girls that have sex and it's fine. And granted, that's like Franny is young, mm -hmm. but... Um, she's also got this sort of Madonna-like thing about her. And it, we're not all whores and moms. It's just really upsetting. Um, and bad writing. And I just don't buy that this woman who's seen, her, young woman who's seen her whole town die would be like, what should I do with my free time? I know. I'm going to go try on perfume samples. Nope. No, no. No. Not a thing. Not a real thing. I'll go to the underwear store. And, you know, it's like, come oh, boy. Yeah. So it really, like, I feel like the... It's the, the root of the character. Do you think that that character, if she was introduced in book one, let's say, and she was given as much space to, to grow as everybody else, do you think there's any salvation in that character if, the, if that was still like her makeup? Or do you think sure. that, that the character itself was kind of just doomed from the I beginning? I don't think that having a character who's young, oversexed, not physically attractive isn't necessarily something that is shitty, right? Yeah. The problem is that she's not actually a character at this point. She's just she's thrown like into it. She's like a sketch yeah. of a bad person. 
Um, but her, the only traits we know about her are the things that I just described. And that's not a character. That's a caricature. Only it's not that's funny. That's a great point. Right? It's, so if we had spent book one with her and we'd seen her dealing with the death of everyone she knows and maybe interactions with her boyfriend, um, maybe some insight as to how she got this way. Or if I'm thinking about now... Um, East of Eden, there's a character that has a sort of similar feel. But that character is incredibly compelling because it's just as though something was wrong with her from the moment she was born. This tiny seed of darkness that just grows. And I think there's room for that in this book, only we don't get any of that. And Steinbeck draws her out tremendously from the beginning. Yeah, and there's a sentence in there where where he talks about her oddly sharp teeth that I've never forgotten. It's Mm -hmm. one of the best little descriptions and you get a lot about who she is as a person from that, and I don't get anything about who Ju- Julie Lowry is no. as a person based on the description of her acne and her shorts that are almost underwear. She's there to serve as conflict for this chapter. Well, and maybe and you, it, you know? maybe you would have gotten more from her if we would have switched over to you know the Vegas side a little bit. Uh, more. That's right. That's also, a just a minor point: there is absolutely no way that a person goes to reach for someone's shoulders and gets their breasts by accident instead. That's, <laughs> oh, that's not real. Unless you're like avoiding Unless a tackle. Jumping. I mean, Maybe no. if somebody went like, <laughs> wah! Yeah. And just like swung yeah. their boobs in the general direction How dare of you? hands. Or, no. Or dare you in this case, unfortunately. Did, uh, did, I'm guessing that my reaction was probably... Uh, more extreme than any of yours, but no, I, I thought I, she just seemed like a like a underdeveloped character. I hate throwing this word around all the time, but perfunctory. Is, yeah, mm-hmm. is the is the I I use it so much, and in every one of my film reviews, I try not to do it, but yeah. it's such a a perfect description for her. It's just like, oh, here's someone that's gonna push him out of town. It like, is, you know? and then also just you know having seen the miniseries before, like I I knew the the role she plays in the story, so. I, I wasn't like, oh, I really want to get invested in this character. You know what I mean? Because yeah. I know that she's kind of in and out and then in and out later as well. Um, she serves, so a, she does serve. She serves a purpose, uh, but it's it's like, well, did you just throw her in there? Just to serve exactly. that purpose. But, you know? exactly. so, yeah, so but even her purpose later on is so, again. That could have gone to word. somebody else. Absolutely. Yeah. But we won't get into spoilers again, but, um, you know, I don't know if that character, well, I'm pretty sure we all agree that character is not 100% necessary for the stand. Book one, book two, or book three. Rejected. Denied. Sorry, Julie. Sorry, Stephen. But um, you blew it. <laughs> I'm going to say. Yeah, basic. Yeah, basic. Uh, I know we're like jumping around here, but I don't, no. don't want to... Um, let's try to talk about as many characters as we can here. Uh, I wanted to talk about Nadine because we we've haven't. we talked about Harold a lot. Yeah. But Nadine is one of those characters that I feel like... They don't. They they flesh her out, but I wish they had they spent as much time on her as they did with Harold. I agree. Mm-hmm. Um, because when they do, they do go into her backstory a little bit with like the Ouija board scene, and which which we'll, is, we'll talk about later. But uh, I I just feel like that is so creepy, and the fact that she's one of the only characters, and maybe I'm wrong, but she's one of the only characters that Flag and this evil has had. Her number from a very young age, and that's an issue that Dan and Randall are here right now. I know Dan, for instance, really has a problem with that. Yeah, and yeah. That's something we can really talk about and in terms of predestination and everything. Because everyone else, nothing, you know. I mean, they live their lives, good, or, good or bad, whatever. But they never mention like having any kind of connection or any kind of anything uh, spiritual, whatever, pre-plague. Yeah. And this is one of those instances that that there is, and it, I thought that was really interesting, and I just felt like they didn't. They didn't use that enough in the book. Yeah, I, I think that's... Um, there's something to be said about being doomed. And, and, and there's something tantalizing 
about that construct, about how regardless of how much she thinks that it was her decision, the fact that Larry rejected her or, um, you know, she might have made some wrong choices along the way. I, I don't think I think it's supposed to be implied that she never had a chance. No. She and, didn't. And, and I there's a pro to and a con to that. You know, I think it's pro because it, it kind of emboldens Randall Flag as this evil entity that's inescapable. Um, even though we kind of real, we kind of learned that's not the, the case. Somewhat, not not so much of a spoiler alert, but um, you know, I, I think by showing Nadine's struggle or lack thereof, um, kind of gives a little more menace to to Randall Flag. At the same time, it doesn't make for the most interesting character study because it's it's. It's not. It's a little unfortunate that she doesn't really have that glimpse. I mean, I still have a problem with the fact that she never gets any, you know, n- never gets any of the dreams from uh, Mother Abigail. Um, you know, she she does. She's totally rejected by Mother Abigail because she's got you know the flag sort of um, mark like mark on her, and, and I, I don't know if that's. I, I, again, it's it's such a weird conundrum because yes, it does. Again, it makes Flag more of a villain, but it, I don't know if that's great writing or if it's just—it's weird. I have, a, I have very conflicted feelings about it. I think um, this kind of goes back to the whole the good versus evil thing and what is predetermined and what is not, because it seems like this is obviously her fate. Uh, everybody else in this book has dreams about both Mother Abigail and Flag. She's the only one that does not have any dreams about Mother Abigail, mm-hmm. and she's the only one that Mother Abigail sees and, and does not recognize essentially and i think this is also king's way granted ultimately it's i don't want to say too many spoilers god exists in the book you know i mean he just does in this book but king himself has never been that religious and i think this is also a way of saying isn't religion so unfair even if this all turned out to be real Mm -hmm. how does it explain away all the horrors and the unjustness of the world you know, my reaction is a little different, and I'm not sure why. Mm-hmm. Because I agree with pretty much everything you're saying, and I wish that her character had been a little better fleshed out. But I'm actually pretty drawn to Nadine, and I think the quality that... Oh, yeah, I'm drawn, to- okay. totally drawn, yeah. Um, I think the quality that makes me so interested in her is that it seems clear that she's doomed. I agree. Yeah. From almost the moment that there's... This odd gentleness about her, and yet there's just something that's off from moment one. Um, and I think the gentleness comes from like a longing for goodness that she knows is unattainable. Yes. Um, it actually reminds me in a completely different context, but a little bit of um, the last rung on the ladder, only in that it's not goodness, it's just like happiness or stability mm-hmm. or a life and it and it's out of reach yeah. um and maybe was almost always out of reach um and here the the dream that larry has that nadine is in where mother abigail is talking to nadine about you've got a good man with you if you would just accept him in maybe there would be some sort of redemption for you um I just wish that had been hers, right? Because it mm-hmm. seems like that, that maybe there isn't actually a chance, but there's this faint, little tiny outside possibility that if she had opened herself up to some sort of love or connection with other human beings outside of dependency, mm-hmm. then maybe her life would have turned out differently. Yeah, there's a great passage about this, specifically about this, and um, it's on page 795. 
And what, what edition is that? It's uh, the uh, <laughs> the Anchor Books edition Smart with uh, the, the cover that reminds me of uh, you know uh, Poland in World War II. That's right. Um, she, you know, the, the narrator describes her plight as saying, "Boulder was her last hope. The old woman was her last hope. The sanity and rationality she had hoped to find at Stovington had begun to form in Boulder. They were good, she thought, the good guys. And if only it could be that simple for her." caught in her crazy web of conflicting desires and so yeah there is this yearning that that she wants to to be this good person but i think even she knows that it's just it's just not going to happen because she has the eye over her constantly and i don't know if it is i wonder if it is the eye or if it is just her spirit i mean you know what's actually a much better comparison the femme fatales from film noir like mm-hmm. I think about, like double indemnity. Mm-hmm. Oh, right? totally. And 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 they the and they, and they, they, they amp that up in the miniseries too. They kind of condense her character from a bunch of people, and we'll get into that later. But I think that's, that's another thing that coming thing. from coming from only having seen the miniseries and reading this book, I was I was surprised that she was actually not at all the person that they make her out to be in the miniseries because they kind of, uh, for lack of a better term, dumb things down. Um, because they condense like three characters into Nadine. Mm-hmm. But um, in the book, I was like, wow, she's actually, she's a teacher. And like, you know, yeah. she's got this whole, like she's not just inherently this bad person, but I feel like, yeah, they do have this, this there is this like femme fatale thing with her where you do, I don't know, they turn her into that for, at, for Larry almost, I feel. Um, I, I don't know. The, the, the whole like love triangle thing there between... <laughs> You know him and oh, Lucy, and Lucy yeah. and, and Nadine is interesting, but um, but yeah, no, I agree with you. It, it is it is she is like that kind of character. Yeah, I think Radiohead said it best, um, and <laughs> as they all as they want to do um, with Nadine. You know, you can try the best you can, you can try the best you can, the best you can is good enough. But in this case, maybe it's not so good enough. It's well, not like, so good enough. Um, <laughs> no. And she doesn't maybe try the best she can. And, you know, ultimately, you know, she thinks she is. She thinks she's doing good enough, but maybe she's not doing good enough. And, well, it, but I do have something to say about the... Um, this goes back to um, what we were talking about with religion. And this is from... This is, just a, this is just a king aside that happens to take place halfway through the book. And he writes, The beauty of religious mania is that it has the power to explain everything. Once God or Satan is accepted as the first cause of everything which happens in the mortal world, nothing is left to chance or change. One such... Uh, and can, uh, incantatory phrase. I'm, I'm sorry if I mispronounced that. Lou, if you're out there listening, correct me on that pronunciation. <laughs> <laughs> we don't forget, Lou. Um, as we now see through a glass darkly, and mysterious are the ways he chooses his wonders to perform or mastered, logic can be happily tossed out the window. Religious mania is one of the few infallible ways of responding to the world's vagaries because it totally eliminates pure accident. To the true religious maniac, it's all on purpose. So I think this kind of addresses the whole the predestination mm-hmm. and the fate and like Mike you were saying about Nadine's unavoidable doom and that she's just a doomed character and hey it's all black and white when it comes to a lot of fanaticism that's it's true know. it's true well we've heard a lot about we've heard of the book of Esther we've heard of mm. the book of Nadine I think book two is really the book of Harold yeah. I, I, I you know I mentioned it before I, I really do love Harold um and, and I and I I do think that Harold is the best part of book two, 
Um, because, you know, Harold really does have a choice. You know, he starts off on the good spectrum. If you really go back and look at it, he, you know, he helped out Franny. He was trying, you know, granted, yes, he <laughs> was evil in the sense of that he wants to be, uh, um, he's, just a, he's a rotten, like, human being, but he still has the chance to be good. And he's still I, a kid at this point. And he's still a kid. And, you know, his his time in Boulder is, for me, was really the only thing that kept me sane <laughs> going on, which is funny and ironic considering that he's an insane person. Um, <laughs> right. But, you know, his his whole, like, sort of um, personal struggles uh, that he has with being good. I mean, because, you know, there's a great, you know, when King gets inside Harold's head, it's some of the most complex writing that's in this book. Um, you know, when, when, when you actually, when I think when Harold relates himself and his struggle with feeling Flag's presence in, in, in the West calling him, he, ta- he relates it to like magnets. And, and, and it's a really well-written um, sequence there where King describes exactly the pull that these characters are feeling and how even if he wanted to run away from both sides, he couldn't even do that because it's just, it, it, it's, it's, without, it's, it's outside of his control at this point. Um, and, you know, there's that whole thing where he, you know, he's trying to smile and, you know, he's always trying to be like this. He's putting on a facade for everyone. But everyone really does actually kind of buy it, even though they're like mildly <laughs> suspicious. Um, but if you think about it, like he really is kind of like uh, a beacon for a lot of different, you know, weird storylines and, and kind of alternative. I mean, like I love the 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 sort of bond he has with Larry in the sense that like he keeps, you know, Larry thinks he's this like um, magnanimous person that's like this this great brave hero and and, and in a way Harold's really smart and tact and, and practical so you you kind of have to look back and go well no he really does know his shit yeah. um, and so it's kind of cool when you see Larry's perspective and and it kind of gives you that sense that like yeah he is he is doing right you know and and, and some of the stuff that he's he's uh, you know uh, proposing um, at the the committee there are right ideas and he, you know, he does actually get down in the dirt and try to like work. Yeah. You know, so I, I did believe that there was some, some sort of thing there. And I tried to imagine me not having seen the mini series and, and, and had <laughs> yeah, yeah. also had re- having read the book before, but, um, and you know, I, I just think that there's that, that struggle of, of, of whether he can go one way or the other, um, is interesting. And in the way that King also, uh, uh, positions it is 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 interesting too because i mean like for example like there's that scene where he wants to kill Stu, mm-hmm. and when he actually approaches Stu, it's not written from harold's point of view it's written from Stu's point of view and you see Stu like kind of being like you know i kind of i second guess this guy right you know i, yeah. I, 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 I you know so then you kind of see that no there is a chance for him people actually do think feel bad about what you know their feelings towards him even though they're all kind of right um, and then it cuts back to Harold and he's like a, a fucking mess. Cause he's like, I can't believe people are showing me goodwill. Like this is new to yeah. me. I don't get it. And so I, I, I mean that for me that it, that though, that layer there was hands down the most interesting part, um, of this story so far. I, I think that one of Harold's biggest issues is that he, first of all, he's so young. Second of all, I'm sure most of the time growing up in those classrooms where he was even bullied, he was probably the smartest kid in the room. And I think he got away with continuing to be so smart. He leaves messages behind in Barna and you know in farms, which ultimately kind of guides Larry along the way. But he's he's so aware of how smart he he thinks he is, 
and that is ultimately his downfall because he, he thinks he's better than everybody in the free zone. He thinks he's the one that's got all the answers, but he's going to let these people go ahead and just fuck it up because he doesn't. Now he's just on the road to to destruction. Yeah, it's not just that he knows how smart he is; it's that he knows how smart he is, and he assumes everyone else is dumb. Yeah, right. Well, and, and, and even and that even bleeds through with like with like Larry, and I love that scene when Larry first meets Franny, mm-hmm. and they're like. And he's like, "Oh, is Harold here?" And, you know, and, <laughs> like, and she's like, "No, <laughs> no." But like, I, I love that scene though. Their exchange because she's just so bewildered at like how he he views Harold, and I feel like that starts to trickle down through everybody else. They start to doubt how they originally kind of inherently felt about Harold, and even though they were they were dead right, um, I think that had enough people done that, maybe Harold, because I feel like Harold is so complicated that I feel like. It's the only character in the book, in, in book two, for sure, that even though I know what happens, I actually started thinking, maybe there's a chance. Yeah. Maybe he could turn himself around if he just let gives in and lets these people make him feel good and make him feel part of the community and actually realizes that, you know, if you just chill out, dude, like, you know. Well, he's obviously a seriously, I think he's a severely depressed person, too. Well, yeah. it, no, I think well, that it figures into it. It goes into the idea of hope and, and, and faith also um, in that, you know, if you're too pragmatic and you're too cynical, cynicism is a huge fault for, for everything. I mean, if you really go back and think, I, mean, I think I think a little bit of cynicism is, is necessary in this world because it's a cynical world. But when you lean too far on it, it can be very, very dangerous. And, I, you know, and it, and it can lead down to some really awful thinking, especially when you're dealing with a blank sheet like they are in Boulder. And there's a passage on page 992 of the uh, Anchor Books edition uh, featuring the, uh, the World War II photo um, where it, they write, he, uh, King writes, Harold climbed into the back of one of the trucks, his mind churning helplessly. All of a sudden, the old grudges, the old hurts, and the unpaid debts seemed as worthless as the paper money choking all the cash registers of America. Could that be true? Could it possibly be true? He felt panicked, alone, scared. No, he decided at last. It couldn't possibly be true. Because consider, if you were strong-willed enough to be able to resist the low opinions of others when they thought you were queer or an embarrassment or just a plain old bag of shit, then you had to be strong-willed enough to resist resist what? Their good opinion of you? Wasn't that kind of logic? Well, that, that kind of logic was lunacy, wasn't it? And you could tell like he's still trying to cling on to what he knew in his past world, which was cynicism. I mean, his, he was beaten down by his culture and, and, and marginalized because... I mean, we know why, just based on that one image of him pushing the lawnmower. Um, and so those old fears are something he can't shake because he has a mistrust in people already. And that mistrust is, is it's like inception. It's like that seed that's just going to always just keep growing no matter how much he suppresses it. And all he needs is someone to tip it off. Yeah. And I don't know how we feel about Nadine being that one to tip it off, uh, especially since she seems to already be so maligned. But um, I, I don't know. I, I think... You know, little sections like that, they're King Pepper, so many of those within this that it's such a believable transition to me that when he finally, you know, even when he, when he, he does actually contend that, you know what, I'm going to do it. I'm going to be Hawk. I'm going to be this thing. And then hawk. he opens, he, he, Hawk, you know, it's not it. that bad. Um, what, was that, what was that Alan Alda's name? In the also, hawk? Um, hawk from Twin Peaks. Oh, Hawk from Twin Peaks. I love Hawk from, from Twin and, Peaks. And General Hawk from G.I. Joe. Hawkeye from, uh, from Ash. But, um, and then he finally opens the door and Nadine's there and is, you know, going to be his sexual 
um, fantasy uh, purveyor. But um, it's a little pound cake tease. A lot of pound cake tease that's coming up soon. But um, yeah, so I, I agree. I, I think the tip off is believable there. But um, yeah, I mean, some of those mental digressions just are great. It's great. Yeah, I think that um, my experience is a little different because to me, I agree with everything you're saying about cynicism. And I think that the formula ultimately, and this is oversimplification, but I think it stands up okay, um, that ultimately leads to Harold's downfall is that it's a combination of cynicism and bitterness Mm -hmm. and entitlement, right? What is owed what others are denying him and uh, cynicism about the world in general. And if he had managed to overcome like maybe even one of those, certainly if two of them, I mean, we see that cynical people can still survive in this world, right? Like that's what we get from Glenn, Mm -hmm. but he's just so from the first from really the first moment that we meet Harold, I was like, Oh, bad news. But then his first interaction with Stu sort of clearly paints them both. And this will be part two of the Feminist Variety Hour from your rotating panel of female guests. Um, of your only uh, rotating yes, panel of I'm, female guests. I'm the guests. rotating panel of female guests. <laughs> so um, there's the this, I hate to use the term toxic max- masculinity because there's a decent chance that like a lot of you are going to stop listening right now, but that's okay. Um, so... We'll just skip right past that and instead talk about the difference between nice guys in quotation marks and just nice people, right? So Harold seems to think, because he quote-unquote rescued Fran, um, that he is somehow entitled to her affection. Mm -hmm. And that conversation that they have where Stu says, essentially, I don't have the quote in front of me, but essentially that you can't own a woman Mm -hmm. and the only way... Like if there are two types of men in the world, men who lay next to a woman who wants them and uses his hand and a man who lays next to a woman and wants them and takes what he wants and that you want to be the other kind, Mm -hmm. um, that you just use your fucking hand basically. Um, and that seems to be a bit of a revelation to Harold, which I don't think means like, oh, well we have a prospective rapist on our hands, but he does view Fran as property and as his due because he's put in the time and he's frustrated by the fucking friend zone. Um, and then you add everything else into that and it just leads to someone who's going to go wrong. Yeah. And you've got, sorry. And you've got Harold who thinks that he and Fran are the last people on the earth. Mm hmm. And then they run into these guys and instead of having, you know, the, oh my God, there's more people alive. He, he's so enamored with his feelings for Fran, just all of a sudden, you know, she's no longer mine. Yes. It's, 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 and it, it's, it has nothing to do with anything else other than you're that. You're going it, to take It's her this from base. Yes. Yeah. It's this base, like, like primordial, you know, Promethean thing. And it's, it's, and as intelligent as he is, he's the one that has that reaction. Which is like, yeah, clearly you're not as smart as you think you are. Yeah, because this you know, is another instance of like, most... it doesn't matter how smart or how dumb you are. These people are still going to be, have these white knights, as it were, are still going to be out there and thinking that they are owed everything because mm-hmm. of how, quote unquote, good they think they are. And it's just, that's not the way the world works. 
And um, so he's like, he's the perfect example. I agree with Allison. Yeah. Because where, where he's got Stu, who is, I think you were gonna make the comparison with Stu and, and Harold. But yeah. Stu and Harold. Well, Stu, because like Stu also meets a woman when he thinks he's maybe never gonna see another human being again, finds himself attracted to her, and never thinks, oh well, it's the end of the world. That's great for me. Here's my newest conquest. That's not something that occurs to him. He's hesitant um, with her, and she as she is to yes. him. Yes, yeah. and also has the presence of mind to realize god the worst thing that i could do in this situation is to antagonize this unstable young man that i should probably prioritize that over my own feelings um and senses of attraction and it it just um it's a great contrast so while uh, while julie lowry is maybe an example of king not being quite as um forward-thinking as he maybe is now as a human um I think that that contrast in particular is really, really solid yeah. um, and smart. Well, and it also, he feels vindicated by the evil, you know? Mm-hmm. He knows that, that, like, I mean, there's that section, again, and not to always just, you know, pull from the book, but... From know, which edition not? of the book? It's, uh, oh, well, uh, <laughs> thank you, Allison, for asking. Um, it's an Anchor Books <laughs> edition uh, featuring, again, the World War II, uh, um, looks like a portrait from Poland. Um <laughs> We're really, uh, we're really hammering. We're really that in using. There. We're really pushing the rule of three joke. But let's just keep it going. Now we have to just yeah, keep going with it's it. It's gonna be like that scene in uh, um, Hot Rod. Never saw it. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. You know where he falls down the hill. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Check yeah. that out if you haven't seen it. If you love <laughs> the stand, check out Andy Samberg in Hot Rod. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like the old classic Hot Rod. Well, he talks about. I mean, Harold kind of. There's a lot. I mean, again, there's a lot of situations where Harold's just in his own mind and um, in his own head, uh, so to speak, and. Um, you know, he details the fact that there are, is a good community. He knows that this is a good community, but he also knows that there's a bad community out there. And he, he says, And he himself, when faced with the knowledge that he was free to accept what was, had rejected the new opportunity, which is, you know, his new life here. He could be Hawk. To seize it would have been to murder himself. The ghost of every humiliation he had ever suffered cried out against it. His murdered dreams and ambitions came back to Eldritch life and asked if he could forget them so easily. In the new Free Zone society, he could only be Harold Lauder. Over there, he could be Prince. So yeah, it goes back into exactly what you were saying. Also, he, it does feed right into his ego and id that, that like he still feels there is a part of him that is telling him that, why do you have to act like a fucking asshole? Mm. Just shed this and move on. But then there's that other part that's like, no, I got here This if, w- w- trusting my own instincts my bastard instincts I got here and there are people out there that are going to respect that and 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 I think that even over Nadine actually inevitably is what kind of tips him over mm-hmm. but again very complicated character I you know not saying I, I, I love the guy in terms of what he is because he's a total fucking oh, yeah. psychopath I would never oh, want to hang out with him no no but in terms of reading about him yeah. is yeah. what got me through book very two, compelling for sure and that's, and that's actually a good transition for me because I'm going to talk about somebody. I know I read The Stand back in December. So I've been holding as many thoughts as I can in, inside for about, I guess, almost... It's, it's been about four months now. And, and you've teased it on text. And I've teased some of it. But I know some of you have gone on tangents about the kid and how much you hate the kid and this and that. That's fine. I love the kid chapter. Oh, oh, really? really? This is exciting. I finally get to talk about this and I finally get to be the contrarian that I hate I in everyday pop culture. I wish no. that Boy. you guys were here to see uh, Mike and Mac and I all just 
physically reacted. Uh, we all like pushed back from the table. I, I, we, I felt like I was in the middle of a David Lynch thing where like, the camera just started to shake violently. <laughs> like, Here we go. Now it's a dream. No, here's here's the thing. No, it's this, okay. But people, this goes pe- back. People like pay it forward out there. They like. Hey, they, 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 they like. <laughs> you know, oh, they, like they like. I'm just joking. I'm joking. Fun fact: Pay it forward is not a bad movie until the last okay, five minutes. Boss uh, right. Baby right. is a huge it's hit, and then it becomes awful. I just want to oh, make man. that. Where, where, is, where did Justin go? Here, like, here, here's the thing. Here's the thing. This goes back. That was a good unintentional transition on your end, Mike. Because I don't like the kid. He's a, he's he's a psychopath. What I like about this character. Is I feel like this is one of the only instances where we have a character who is not like Lloyd, who is, quote unquote, who's kind of described as a bad guy, obviously, and Trash Can Man, who is crazy and unreliable, but ultimately devoted to Flag. This character of the kid is a total wild card. He is just walking madness, and he is he doesn't give a shit about well, obviously he doesn't give a shit about Mother Abigail and and, and the Free Zone. That's to be. He doesn't even give a shit about Flag. He openly calls out Flag for being useless. And this is a guy who loves his Coors Light. He loves saying things like, you don't tell me, I'll tell you, which I know everybody here just can't get enough of. <laughs> um, yeah, let me tell you. Wait. But again, this is an example of, and this is something, I, I think that if he was in the chapter with just about anybody else, he would have either been killed immediately <laughs> or just avoided at all costs. But because the easiest prey of all the main characters is Trash Can Man. And so now you've got this guy and the kid who, does anybody remember, I think it's the reason I really enjoyed the chapter and, and, how, and how uneasy I felt reading this entire chapter. The episode Six Feet Under, when David, it's a one-off episode when David is kidnapped yeah. for the day. Yeah. Yeah. He totally reminds me of that no. character and the unpredictability. <laughs> Wait, you never saw Six Feet Under? I, it's been a long time. I can't remember. It's a pretty intense episode where David is kidnapped and you don't know what this guy's going to do to him. And they go on like, and he like forces him to take yeah. drugs. And he forces, I think, I think at one point. He literally soaks him in kerosene at the end. Yeah. And, and you, then th- you he's think just, he's going to light him on fire and he you, doesn't. You don't know what's going to happen. It's intense. And so for me, the kid really reminds me of that character. And I think. He reminds me of Frank from Blue Velvet. That's another good comparison. But you know, I, just like these people who are so crazy, but but have total control. And I felt for me that was what was. I, I can't imagine the book with without the kid. How about that? I can't. I can't imagine it. I think that having the kid in there, in some, I, to me, it was just like King realized. Oh, you know, I don't, I don't have my greaser in here, and he just <laughs> had yeah, yeah. shoehorns another Henry greaser Bauer's in there. Here. You know, I mean, seriously, even down to the way he speaks. And I know, like, I think Randall uh, was talking about how he's supposed to be like the. Uh, Dan the, mentioned the embodiment. how he's how King, well King says he's the embodiment of Charles Starkweather, who, um, you know, you hear about in the song Nebraska by Bruce Springsteen, right? Influenced Terrence Malick's Badlands. And I was also having a conversation with Dan earlier about how maybe like he. Does is he really? Is he real? Is he? Like, I think that's he's the thing. so crazy. So is yeah. you know, and trash is so crazy. Like maybe he doesn't see this person, but then don't. No, I don't want to well, get into three. He's, no, he's absolutely but, real. I think that's yeah. that's, that's, so, that's that from King was very strange because I never I never got the feeling reading this that he was anything other than a real person. Yeah, I definitely think he was real. And I think um, he's a real person. I think that maybe well, yeah, he was he's, influenced. No, he is, but I think what King was trying to say, looking back at some of the quotes as I read them, was that. The character was influenced by the existence right. of Charles. Um, it's yeah, Starkweather. Um, but 
let's talk about a little bit more though about what I don't like about the kid. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Let's, not not because, as in the character. Because and Mike, you want I I want you to take this a little bit because you talked about this. The the gun the gun rape sequence. Yeah. Um we we know he's a madman enough. And uh, you know there's always a fine line to draw between like when should we depict vi- how do we depict violence in entertainment and when is it to the point where it's we're over the line. And for me, it's the, the line is usually further away, I think, a lot of the time. But yeah, for me, me reading this, I felt, what? Why? I know, obviously, we're talking about it. It was served as a purpose to, to, to serve as a shock. It does that, but not in a, an, an entertaining way, in any way, well, or compelling the, way. Well, here's the problem with that shock, is that, you know, again, this is written in the late 70s and updated in the 90s. And, you know, the, the idea, I mean, Will and Grace wasn't even around at, at, at this point. No, I mean, it was very uncommon to have um characters you know queer characters in 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 any stories and what i i have a problem with the kid in 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 this is that you know there is um you know gay they they, they, i mean they have sex together and it's it's obviously portrayed as this rotten miserable thing because they're rotten miserable people and I wouldn't have, it wouldn't have dawned on me at all. It wouldn't have been a problem if they also didn't do that sort of icky sort of like, Ooh, look at they're they're gay. And like, they're evil. Um, they're doing something evil in, in the eyes of God. Um, if they didn't also do that with Bradenton in book one and, and it's the only it, other gay character. Yeah. I think, and right? there are no other gay characters. And again, it, it's hard to, to slam this because it was written at a time when, you know, it, it wasn't so prevalent in pop culture to include, you know, to, to have that sort of inclusivity. But reading it now, it, it is very like, especially when you're tying this to such religious themes, and we all know the, how the you know Christians and Catholics love their gay people, um, and you know it, it it does feel like a condemnation of the, 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 the gay culture, even though I know that's not the idea, and I know I mean King is the, the most like liberal like bleeding heart bleeding heart liberal out there, but just reading this, I, I that's how I looked at it. I thought it was very weird that. That like the only instances of gay characters, other than um, uh, the baffled uh, uh, lesbian experience, can't wait to talk about that. um, Well, it it, it just felt very weird to me, and maybe that's me looking way too into it. But it just it's no, it's just it's it's the kids section's weird to me because it was like King decided, well, let's give let's give trash cans someone to worry about, so we can maybe see like, you know. A more rounded character with a trash can man. Maybe, maybe he's not so bad. Maybe there's worse people than him. Or, I could see that. Or, or maybe, maybe there's good in him, and he, now we're gonna feel bad for Trash because he's being kind of bullied by this. We're seeing like the bullies that kind of haunt Trash outside. But I was like, no, who can't? Like Trash can's uh-huh. so crazy, and he's such an unreliable narrator that half the time I was really like, is the kid really here? Now, obviously, he is, and later on they they kind of confirm that. But I just I didn't I didn't get it, and I uh, think with trash I don't think it would have worked with him traveling all the way to Vegas and finding somebody kind of how, you know, um, Stu and Franny and company find Dana, and 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 her crew. And well, I guess and, and, and what I'm saying is they end up in Vegas together. Nick meets Tom. They end up not not Vegas. They end up in Boulder. Nick meets Tom. They end up in Boulder. I can't imagine trash having another partner with him and then making it all the way to Vegas. And again, I think. King definitely wanted to have a, a long, like a, like like we were talking about earlier, like a short story for Trash that would be a long 50, 60 pages. And he wanted to include somebody else. And why not include this person that, in, the, in which there's no way in hell 
this person's going to make it through the next 60 pages one way or the other. They that's should. why I think the kid was included in that regard. Well, I would have rather seen a short story with Lloyd, but that's just me. Well, oh, absolutely. <laughs> that's the other thing. Like, as we look back on book one, if you read book one, like Allison, for instance, you read book one, you'd never read it before, you'd never seen the movie before. Mm-hmm. So you read book one, it's great. But then when you start to read book two and three, you start to realize, I wish, well, at least I start to realize, I wish there were more, there was another focus on a, even a whole brand new villain in book one. I wish it wasn't just Lloyd and Trash because we get the perspectives of four or five quote-unquote good guys and then we just get two bad guys yeah. in book one, essentially. Yeah. And, and then in book two, one of those bad guys is, is just a side character at the end of the Trash chapter. Mm-hmm. And well, I feel like that's another example of why I think for me reading book two, I was so interested um, in the kids section because I, there's the rest of it's just a bunch of sternos back padding and, and having beers and a, and a cool... Colorado night. And I we just, have a couple of little moments with Lloyd, but they're little. Yeah, they're little. Yeah. They're not enough. Contemplating cannibalism and shit like that. Yeah. But, but I, it feels like... Um, but that's in book one, right? Isn't that in book one? God, where he's in, well, yeah, when he's, he's in prison, oh, he's in jail, yeah. Yes, you're right. But book no, two, he's like... In book two, he just kind of disappears. And, well, and he's just with, with, with one, trash. That's, that's the only instance. But the thing with book one, too, is like, you know, not knowing the trajectory of these characters, if you're just reading for the first time, like... Uh, I mean, they spend a lot of time with Larry, so I guess you can kind of assume that he's going to be good. But like, he's he's grapples so much with him being such a bad man. Yeah, you know, like he, he could have easily ended up being a bad guy. You know, had he not gone through what he goes through. Um, so, but yeah, I really wish there were some more characters. Even oh God, even Julia Lowry, because then you would have been able to go into well, that character saying. more. If you've got Julia Lowry, make her a real character. If you give her as much time as you give Franny or Stu or anybody in book one. Who knows what we're thinking about her in book two when she meets Nick? That's because it's a whole. It's a, you're just developing something there, you know. I look at it kind of how when um, Mac and I play Battlefront, and when you <laughs> log in, you can't have like two people on the Imperials and like four people with the Rebels. Like, That's a very when you do an online point. game, oh, like you need to have the equals there to kind of balance it out. And it doesn't have to be that specific uh, to to the numbers, but. Maybe if Battlefront was, was around say, back know, in the uh, mid seventies, yeah, I mean maybe he would have taken a cue. He would have saw that loading screen, and be like, "Aha!" You know, I'm I'm always critic, and uh, we got Generoso over here. Yeah, uh, oh. you know, it's uh, <laughs> love Rogue One. That's yeah, a, Rogue One's great. You can't see um, the sarcasm uh, dripping from my face. The yeah. last thing I do want to say about the kid is I love how we don't even see him die. Yeah. he's left in his own personal hell because he lives to just annoy people and have people look at him and listen to him. And all he is, his doom is to not have a gun and be stuck in the back of a car having to decide, do I leave this car and have these wolves eat me to death or do I just starve to death in this small confined kind of prison a, all by myself? Nice and l- it's just a little poetic ending for that little piece of shit, the kid. Nice little echo to Cujo. Ah, yeah, yeah that's, a, that's yeah. a good point. That's a good point. But I'll take, you know, Cujo over the wolves any day of the week. Can we talk about Franny? In yeah. book two? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Because... He, I feel like a lot of people say that, you know, and again, like my, my whole thing was Molly Ringwald was my introduction to Franny. <laughs> and, you know, I, I didn't mind her in the, in the miniseries at all. But like so many people I've heard, I had heard like were like, no, she's not. Franny's not, you know, Molly Ringwald. And she plays her like this and da, 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 da. And Franny's this cool character and she's this and this and that. And book one, I felt absolutely. She, you know, yeah. she's, she's this like this like very much this individual and i was really like all about her character and it was very very different from the from the miniseries um but book two i just feel like like the story a lot of characters just stall out 
Mm. And I just feel like she just becomes to me. I just felt like she was like this, almost like this one note character, you know, that would just have conversations with Stu and then they'd like do it, you know, like, I don't know. I just wanted them to have, I wanted her to have more going on. And and I guess she does with, you know, Larry and they kind of go on the adventure together and stuff. But like, I just, I wanted her to have so much more throughout the rest of this book and it just didn't happen. He makes her, well, King, I feel makes her just so emotional throughout. And I know you could, we could say that, um, you know, when the hormones, when you're pregnant and whatnot, I, I understand that. But I just feel like she's so often depending on everybody else in a lot of ways that just kind of, I hate saying, it's hard to betray a character because it's the person's, this is what the person, this is what the writer wants to do. But in a way, it just doesn't, it doesn't echo back to what, who she is in book one. That's my take on Franny in book two. And, and honestly, for the rest of the, of the novel, I don't know what, well, anybody else thinks about that? I but. mean, I, again, it goes back to those, those journals because that's like one of the biggest ways yeah. that you get her voice, and the way that King writes her in those journals is so like, um, it, it's very like the the woman that's sitting at the window waiting for the loved one, and like I mean, like mm-hmm. look at this line. It's like, um, <laughs> you know, she writes in her journal uh, on page six fifty five again of the Anchor Books edition uh, featuring. I have that edition, Mike. I'll read along. Oh, oh nice. Um, do you want to read along with me? Oh, All right, God. 655 at no, the bottom, oh, right here. Yeah. All right, you got it? One, two, three. I know this must sound awful, but I really wish I had someone to help me be warm, warm on this bed. bed. I even have a candidate in mind. I mean, thank you. Come on. That worked. I, thought I thought that was worth it, guys. I think that was seamless. I don't think any of us... Um, bungled that it was amazing because individually you each sound like a dude and somehow together I was transported you were like oh (laughs) wow this does sound like a pregnant college student (laughs) a young 20 something pregnant college student I I see you're not and you're like what are your thoughts on Franny this uh... well I I mean I still think that she's an interesting character I was just Uh um, a little disappointed that a character who had so much agency in the first book um, had so little in the second yeah yeah exactly you know I um, I love her in the first book love yeah Mm -hmm. I was I thought she was one of the most interesting characters and then she just it's just like one note in the book too dear diary Th- yeah. that is exactly the tone and you don't of even... the journals it feels like it's not coming from a yeah. 21 year old that we met in the first book it feels right. like it's coming from like a 14 year old and not to, not to sidetrack but we didn't talk about this when we talked about Harold how he starts writing the ledger and does the ledger work against him or, or for him in terms of like having a, his own journal and going into that well he bleeds a lot of his own angst and anxiety you know his, all his anxieties are poured into the journal and he talks about that and then in a way it does embolder Empower, it actually empowers him because he... It's like a sounding board, essentially, yeah, to if, no one but him. And then as you learn in book three, it really... Yeah. You know. And not to stay too far on the, off the subject, but w- I think it's interesting that, you know, the, the journal that Franny keeps comes back to haunt her because Harold finds it and then, you know, pretty much loses it after he reads it. Um, that the same thing happens to him. Like, he's worried about people finding this thing that's going to basically out him. And I don't know. It's it's weird that he would decide to write that when, you know, and keep it under that the, the huge journal stone under the you know, blue, yeah. you know. It's just all this. But um, I feel like maybe tip one for surviving the apocalypse is wait to keep a journal until you've got a society where you can have a locked fucking drawer. That's yeah. Right. Like maybe yeah. that's tip one for surviving the apocalypse. Yeah, if you can't turn the lights on, uh, maybe... Uh, well, no, t- step one away. would be make sure you have an uncorrupted source of water. Step two would be no journals until you have privacy. Yeah. 
Until and also, obviously, lot. make sure you know you decide whether or not you want to ratify the Constitution because that makes for a really captivating section of book two. Look, all right, <laughs> and that leads into my character of that I that I love, 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 love again. Over, you know, even I mean, as if we want to talk about an actual hero, I, I like Glenn, I love Glenn Bateman, and those discussions with about building government to me was interesting. Um, just coming from a history background, not to be you know a stuffy son of a bitch by saying that, but. Um, <laughs> That 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 whole sunrise over Boulder, opening chapter when it's just him and Stu. Oh, and that's kind great. Of talking no, about that's, that's great. forming the government. I mean, that is just. I I think I read that chapter like twice just because it's so. It's very. You have those sort of college sort of discussions, and you're like, oh, how would we fix the world? And they are on the actual edge of the world, being able to fix it. So mm-hmm. like. It felt very real to me, and it was also just a nice moment. Like I, I love. No, I love that. Like I love their sort of things. But yeah, when they do actually get into the, the meat and potatoes of how they're going to put this together, again, it's overwriting. And they they could have done one scene of that, and they or maybe yeah. a couple, not I'll, like I'll, ten. I'll talk about more of that when we get to the cemetery. Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> well, oh, is that your own cemetery? I'm not kidding. That's my own cemetery. Well, we'll talk about that. Glenn. Yeah, and and I like Glenn a lot, but I do feel like it's the same thing. Like what Glenn tells a lot. Mm-hmm. And then we also see it happen in the committee. And yeah. it's like, we didn't yeah. need both. Like, if we could watch this unfold in the committee and even have Glenn chime in and kind of say, like, oh, this is going this way. Or just have Glenn state, like, this is probably how the committee is going to turn out. Because, you know, we come back to it later and then they, they, you know, book three, like, they go into enough of it where it's like, well, you then you didn't really need all this yeah. talk in book two because you kind of see a lot of that play out. But anyways. The vignettes are gone by book two. And I feel like they should have come back for... All the committee meeting chapters. Well, well they, <laughs> have, yeah. like, they have. So and so got together and decided to do this. Well, the closest they so and so, you know, like that's you know. The closest they come to that is when the power comes on and you see like the little like things coming like turning on in different houses. Well, which and, is yeah. interesting which because I, I feel that. like that's one of the only things from book two that survives to the miniseries. I, I'm gonna keep going back to the miniseries because that's my only point of reference. Yeah. But anyways. Yeah, I. Um, but but think, I know you like Glenn a lot, though. I do like Glenn, and again, I think a lot of it's like because I, I imagine Ray Walston, and I love Ray Walston. I also think it's interesting that like there's just characters like I feel like Franny, Stu, Ralph, Nick, even Tom, like they just stall out in book two. They're not. They're just like back in the background, and I know that they focus a lot more on like Larry and Nadine and Harold and um and and even Franny and 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 Larry, but they they don't really give them a whole ton. And maybe it's because we already kind of know who they are and they're kind of the most fixed characters at that point because they spent a lot of time with Nick and Tom in book one. I mean, I agree with you to, to a point, but I think of all the people you mentioned, I don't think Tom stalls out at all. Well, no, I mean, well, yeah. I mean, they Tom definitely gets some, some well, let's good talk about Tom. there. Let's talk about Tom. He's a character that's introduced in book two. So let's yeah. talk about Tom. Who wants to talk? Let's talk Tom. Let's have a Tom talk. Tom talk. I love Tom. I mean, again, can't stop picturing that guy from Coach um, playing him. But uh, he's great. He's great. Um, I, I, my, I mean, I think the introduction is gorgeous. Um, I think the irony that he's linked with, you know, Nick Andros, his deaf and dumb, is is brilliant, mm-hmm. um, and just really kind of almost like some you mentioned Steinbeck before it, it seemed very Steinbeckian to mm-hmm. me um, almost kind of like a twist on Of Mice and Men yeah um, oh I thought of Of Mice and Men the whole yeah. time yeah and 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 I, and I his like his relationship with Nick is uh, might be my favorite relationship in 
you know, in the, in this whole story. I mean, eventually where where Tom who Tom links up with in book three is great, but yeah, um, yeah. I don't know. What do you what do you, what do you I think on with Tom? Um, obviously, he's handicapped as we know, and there's just this really lovely sense of innocence with him mm-hmm. that you just can't get with literally anybody else in the book, even with Stu, who is just kind of just your noble guy. Um, I, I don't see any flaws with Tom, and, but it's in a way that's just totally believable because I feel like he's always going to have that that kind of childlike wonderment about the world. And, and fears, obviously, because he's still very afraid, especially like you touched upon earlier, Allison, when Julie teases him about the Pepto-Bismol Ugh, being so poisoned. So it's just, it's just, it just breaks your heart. Fun. It's just For no reason... Uh, it just breaks your heart. So I, again, I love Tom and I will, I, I like Tom more than the kid. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, thanks, oh, Justin. Are you happy? <laughs> thanks a lot. Um, no. You know, last, in the last episode, um, Randall and Mike kept saying, just wait till you meet Tom Kellen this week. Yeah. And I, and I'm really excited. Like I it totally lived up to the hype. Yeah. Um, we were on a break earlier and I was saying there's, um, there are these, tropes and storytelling that mostly you want to avoid some because they're harmful and some because they're just boring and we were talking earlier about like bagger vance and the magical negro trope Mm -hmm. which i think is really harmful but um there's a similar like magical differently abled person here to teach you a lesson about kindness and that drives me up the wall and if you're gonna do it you have to do it so well that it doesn't matter that that's what you're doing and i feel like that is the case here Mm -hmm. um with both Tom and Leo. Um, God, that's his name, right? Now I'm yeah. yeah, Joe. Awesome. Okay, it's Joe, Joe but he's Leo. actually right. Leo. Well, it yeah. depends, um, yeah. Okay. yeah. Well, they're both just very well-drawn characters that I am interested in and want to read about and that I find compelling. And the fact that they're also used in this sort of plot device way remains vaguely troubling but not enough for it to actually matter they're just too well written for that to matter a whole bunch i agree because where where he where he succeeds here i believe king fails years later with Dreamcatcher and duddits and that's an example like you said Allison, mm. where you use a disabled person to serve this kind of magical supernatural service yeah the duddits well, the duddits so character is not oh god but also, we'll get to Dreamcatcher in about uh, three four years from now yeah, i think yeah, yeah. at this point it's also interesting to me that you know like um when they Put Tom under, and that's, that's in book two, right? Book yeah, two, it's book two. Book mm-hmm. two is so long. Uh, <laughs> it's seven. When they put Tom under, and and he kind of channels into when he's like when he's um, uh, God's Tom, mm. and there and it is like this weird thing where, you know, is he is he connecting with him because he's of this innocence there, and the same thing with Leo because he's a child. Is is there this connection there with younger people or or with innocence? Um, that is just severed when you when you grow up. And yeah, no, I agree. I mean, there's even the whole case with, I think it's Franny who's very opposed to it because they all understand that of, of everybody there, you could probably condition Tom to not give away what's going on and who he is. And even though it's an easy way to go about it, Franny just feels so guilty having to have him do it. You know, I think it's Franny. I believe it's Franny that has to, is yeah, really she, she, resonant. She's really against it, and yeah. I don't even think I think she's even when they make the final decision is doesn't she? Yeah, she's still she votes against no. it. Yeah, so and she's mad at Stu for going I, with yeah, it. Yeah, it's one of the only decisions that where it's not. You know, well, because it ties back into her thing, and this is actually one of the components um, storylines of, of Franny. I actually really do love in this 
is that she is very steadfast in being like, no, like, why do yeah. we have to fight? Like, why, do, like why are we re- reverting back to these old ways of like, we have to go to war. We have to do this. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and, and that's, that was really, I love that. Like that was really compelling to me. Yeah. Um, I think that this moment is her best moment in book two. The whole Tom section. Yeah, yeah, because then it becomes she becomes like you know the um, the voice of reason. The, well, and also like the soldier's wife, basically towards the end of book two, you know, and it's that's not the most compelling story well, when you not. can't draw it out as much, you know. Um, but yeah, um, I there's actually a Nadine quote that I think bears up the theory about children and innocence and maybe mm. why that happens, mm. and it's um, when she's talking about being a teacher. Uh, she says, I love the little ones. Some of them were bruised, but none of them at that age irre- irrevocably spoiled. The little ones are the only good human beings. And Larry says, kind of a romantic idea, isn't it? She shrugged. Children are good. And if you work with them, you get to be a romantic. That's not so bad. Um, and I think there's also a quote that Nick has when he first meets Tom about how he seems like a child, particularly when he finds out, when he is able to figure out to reason that he's a deaf mute. His delight at getting the right answer is so childlike that I think that this totally bears up that theory. Yeah. yeah mm-hmm. And I agree. And I think that's also another reason why Nadine feels so crushed when, when Leo leaves mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. that was one of her, what was another, this connection to goodness that yeah. is now gone and, and, purpose. and now she has to, you know, she has to figure things out on her own and, you know, last ditch effort. Well, I do wonder if Nadine, though, if she always saw Joe as not so much of, of, of like a loving. She says that she cares for Joe, obviously, slash Leo. But I wonder if at the end of the day, uh, if Joe slash Leo just kind of served as a distraction from the inevitable Could for be. her. Like she knew that once, well, for instance, she tr- she gives it one last shot with Larry and Larry says no. And once, you know, Leo's gone, now she knows that there's nothing to, to deter her from going off to her inevitability with, with Flag. Well, I think more than a distraction, like a purpose. Yes. A purpose other yes. than to be other a force of evil. Flag. Yeah. yeah, exactly. When Leo leaves, she's like, now I have to face myself. Yes. And yeah. actually, I can't, I'm not taking care of someone else, I have to take care of myself. And she can't. I mean, like, it, she, again, they don't give her a choice in the novel, mm-hmm. which I, I don't like. Because I don't I, like I, it. Here's the thing about that, though. I, know, I don't I, like it, but that is, I think, a deliberate um, purpose that King is it, trying it to is. Put, put forward. But because... She's the only non-black love, and white. Because opinion. I really loved her character, I just felt like... It, it, it kind of felt like, well, she doesn't have a choice, and then she... The, these two men leave her and you know and she goes to Larry and it's like, it's like, well, Larry's make it or break it for her. I'm like, no, like, make it or break it yourself. You know, like, you... I don't know. I, I wanted to see her make that decision well, on her could. own. Yeah, I see and then she even she even is still like wavering when she's like trying to seduce Harold and then, yeah. you know, still goes through with it. So I, I don't know. But yeah, I, I, I definitely think that um, children are innocent. <laughs> <laughs> we love Tom. So <laughs> we were saying yeah, we love okay, Tom. We love Tom. Um, there there are there are a few things that I thought were kind of cool how they expanded out on certain characters out even like kind of talking about the characters for example like flag i'd mentioned how you know nadine's struggle actually kind of um empowers him um but you also see flags reach with like the weasels with like you know mother abigail the wolves wolves, with like the kid like Mm -hmm. um you know even the tornado between Nick and Tom, how it's hinted that that's flag. Oh, that's such a great sequence. And it's oh, such a, I, I totally forgot. forgot. About that. Yeah. Wow, yeah, that's great. You know, and like even just the, the way that they haunt the damned, 
you know, like Harold feels that weight coming in from the West, like Nadine, like is channeled is literally a channel for flag like this book he's not in it you know but he is in it like he is here so yeah we've been talking about like how there isn't a big split but his presence is still felt which is kind of creepy you know and um so i i thought that was that was like a cool way of building character in this um and maybe might be the reason why he didn't go to vegas you know because he wanted to kind of show his presence elsewhere but i still think he could have you know split it up a little bit yeah. but you know what about mother abigail i said yeah. my piece on mother abigail <laughs> you know what i actually <laughs> think that maybe we mostly covered her in structure and format although i will yeah. say um well, there's a character in august wilson's uh, century cycle which is a series of plays about the american black experience that are really incredible and everyone should read them they're profound pieces of writing he wrote fences yes fences okay. is a part of that cycle. Popular. oh okay um and uh there's a character who appears repeatedly throughout that cycle um there's one for each decade of the century anyway um named aunt esther like ancestor works Ooh. for me anyway she's 285 years old um and there are a lot of similarities though i think the august wilson character is a little more dynamic but it's um I mean, characters like this pop up a lot in literature, I think is like a vessel for a historic experience for like the knowledge of, of decades, if not centuries. Um, so I, I mean, I think she fulfills a function. I yeah. don't think anyone is yeah. going to go, man, you know who my favorite character in the stand is? No, <laughs> like no, that's no. not, yeah. um, she's a pivotal character, but not an incredibly she's important in my, character, yes. but she's not, um, She's vital in terms of plot, and I would never say that she's just a plot device. She's but, not the kid. But no. <laughs> oh, I want to make it, sorry, the kid is not my favorite character. I just wanted to talk about the kid. I have to keep uh, defending that's myself. That's totally I fair. thought that she's a little, it was, you know, kind of very intriguing character in the sense, I mean, she's really like the only black character in the story outside of um, the Rat Man, which we haven't gotten to really yet. But, um, you know, and she's Republican, which is, I thought that was kind of um, like a, you know, a I think Franny's parents were Republican as well, I believe. But, but he was still a, a, a good man, I guess. But there's also, there's, there's she seems very mean um, in mean? some sections. You know, like she's talking about how, and maybe, and I, and I kind of liked it in the sense because it shows that she's not this like all, you know, knowing being um, right. that the, the miniseries obviously paints her as. But they, there's a part where she's she's just alone by herself and she starts talking about how they're probably just going to create a society against her and, you know, um, and, and how they're, they're, they're going to have the, their own ways. And she's very, she's kind of little, um, there's well, a little cynicism there that mm-hmm. I, that but was that, kind of interesting, you know, but it was a little confusing uh, in the, you know. I think yeah. it, it humanizes her in a way that, in the, again, I hate, we can't really keep talking about the miniseries, but when we see her by herself in the miniseries, she's very folksy. Yeah. And it's like, I hope they all get here in time. But in this, she's very much more of a, of a human, essentially, yeah. In, the, yeah, in the book. And, and obviously, that definitely informs the reasons why, you know, she books it. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, no, because she's, it's, it's pride. She's like, I, I, I put myself on this pedestal too much, like you know. She wastes away and, essentially, yeah. And and that's that's another uh, part of the uh, cemetery that uh, I want to talk about. Well, sh- shall shall we? Well, um, there's one person you all wanted to talk about. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh wait, hold right. on. Before let's let's put off that path to, yeah. to to death to the cemetery and 
Yeah, because again, you don't want to we go down that route. Because on our last episode, celebrate this thing called life. That's right. Oh, here, you know, rest in peace, Prince. By the way, um, <laughs> <laughs> always and forever. Always and forever. <laughs> um, no, I do love Prince. But last week, last time we were on this, our stand episode, we talked a little bit about Larry, how much we liked Larry, and Allison was a little more. Uh, hesitant to mm-hmm. jump on the Larry Lovin bandwagon. Yeah. Um, it was the Adam, Adam Stork interview. It was the Adam Stork. Yeah, we love Adam Stork. And I hope you listen to that episode. He's a lot. He's a great guy. But Allison, where are you now with your uh, travels with oh, uh, Larry I'm Underwood? Oh, so I'm team Larry. Hey! I love Larry. Hey, you are all right. It's great. It's like, somehow, I just think you're lying to me. Every <laughs> time you tell me something that's going to happen and I'm going to change my mind about something, I'm like, nah, nah, man. And then sure enough, no, it, it's great. His journey is very compelling. And I think there's this corner that he turns that I, I, I just, the moment when I really fell in love with him was when he starts to just be so excited about Harold yeah. Yeah. and says, I can't wait. Or the narrator says that he can't wait. He can't wait to buy that guy a beer or maybe a payday. Just because of the rapper and his excitement about finding this rapper, I just yeah, I totally came around. Oh, He's and, great. And, and Inspector Larry makes a Inspector Underwood. <laughs> Inspector Underwood. Oh, yeah. uh, Burt Macklin, FBI. Yeah. So oh, I guess no. Yes. Joke. Totally. Yes. Um, so I, just, I think that he's a really neat counterpoint to Harold and that they're both struggling with whether or not they're fundamentally decent and the fact that Larry keeps struggling. Um, and keeps trying to come out on the right side, makes it clear that he is a fundamentally decent person with the same flaws as all of us, like selfishness and pride and ego and lack of care. Mm-hmm. And everybody does those things. And um, yeah, I just, yeah, I, I love Larry. And I think that's great. That That's what I was thinking. Like, you know, because again, I'd seen the miniseries, so I knew the tra- trajectory of the character, but reading book one, you weren't sure. Oh, yeah. You were not on board with him. You I weren't, maybe not. he was just going to, do we really to have to jerk. spend more time with this rock star? Yeah, like I yeah. don't need to read the sentence, "Baby, can you take your man?" I love him. I, I love. I, I him. love that you love Larry. <laughs> how I love to love Larry, um, <laughs> which is a takeoff, of course, of how I love to love Nadine, which now transitions us into the more scarier aspects of book two with the cemetery. What's the bottom of the truth? Well, sometimes that is better. The person you put up there ain't the person that comes back. It may look like that person, but it ain't that person. Because whatever lives in the ground beyond that cemetery ain't human at all. All right, who wants to get us started in the old cemetery? I think we could talk about a little section called the zoo. Oh, oh yeah. God. Let's talk about the zoo. <laughs> Which is just horrifying mm-hmm. yeah i mean uh, you know we've got our our, our heroes come upon a, a barricade on the on the road and uh ugh, i can't even <laughs> well it's very very 28 days later in a way yeah except not 28 days later but um actually it is kind of 20 it could be 28 days later yeah it is kind of fast how both of those movies just have no hope in humanity and i agree i don't have much hope in humanity either speaking so. of cynicism yeah. there we go you know I'm, I'm, i guess you might as well just call me a harold lauder um, um happily yeah that that section is is by far the most jarring um just because it's so you well, totally believe it. it we haven't know? seen anything like that yet no 
Because and, I um, think the other thing is there's nothing supernatural about it. No. So of all the of all the post-apocalyptic events that happen in book two and book three for that matter, it's sadly, obviously, and maybe the most believable thing that would probably happen if something like this, if a, if a plague swept through the world. And it happens so suddenly. I mean, yeah. they're just rounding the corner and all of a sudden guns are going off and then you're with these, you know, the women that... I mean, Art. that's horrifying, but I feel like what's more horrifying is the actual zoo itself. No, that's what I'm, that's what <laughs> yeah, I'm talking absolutely. about. No, no. no that's no, what I'm no, talking yeah. about. That yeah. is so believable to me that, again, like I also touched upon earlier, the um, these privileged men who have, who now, and, and now in addition to that, have all this control now. They've got the guns. They've got the, again, uh, the, the, the toxic masculinity, which I will. All right, fine. Come at me. Toxic masculinity. <laughs> and they're in control and... And they've and they have these women, and they're just drugging them and keeping them just yeah. just cognizant enough to you know move around, but not be able to fight back. And Ugh, they, they abuse them, and um, it, it also it also is the introduction of a couple of characters that I I really love and wish we could have seen more of in uh, um, like uh, Sue and Dana. Uh, Dana, oh mm-hmm. Dana, I love Dana. Um, but wow, yeah. Yeah, Susan has a has a pretty vivid account when she's explaining to them exactly what happened, mm. and it's very alarming how forthcoming she is because she's. I mean, you can tell that she hasn't been able to tell anyone. You know, it's such a unremarkable situation, uh, or such a remarkable situation that this is. I cannot, you know, like, good lord, like, I mean, it it was only a month ago that she probably was living this normal life. And then all of a sudden, I mean, she, the way she describes this, and I mean, it's pretty dark, but I, I feel like it should probably be going. To, yeah. So on, on page 691, um, she says, I get up in the morning, be raped two or three times, and then wait for Doc to hand out the pills, Susan said, matter-of-factly. The daytime pills, I mean. By the third day, I had abrasions on my, well, you know, my vagina, and any sort of normal intercourse was very painful. I used to hope for Ronnie because all Ronnie ever wanted was a blowjob. But after the pills, you got very calm. Not sleepy, just calm. Things didn't seem to matter after you got yourself wrapped around a few of those blue pills. All you wanted to do was sit with your hands in your lap and watch the scenery go by or sit with your hands in your lap and watch them use the record and move something out of the way. One day, Garvey got mad because this one girl, she couldn't have been any more than 12. She she wouldn't do... I'm not going to tell you. It, it was that bad. So Garvey blew her head off. Mm. I didn't even care. I was just calm. After a while, you almost stopped thinking about escape. What you wanted more than anything, more than getting away, were those blue pills. Dana and Patty Kroger were nodding. It's like, and again, four weeks ago, there was society. Mm. <laughs> so quickly it falls apart. Well, it's, it's also, but the thing that's also really scary about it is that that shit's probably going was going on before the plague yeah. too. You know what I mean? Like that shit goes on all the time. Yeah, and just you just don't hear about it. You know, it, it, it's just sick. You know. Yeah. Um, I will say two things and nothing else because you guys have this covered. Um, the first is that uh, everyone should watch The Handmaid's Tale on mm-hmm. Hulu. It's now like the third time I've brought this up on the podcast, but it is um, really important uh, and it explores what's explored kind of in miniature here in greater detail. 
Um, and it is incredibly relevant to the place that we're at today. Mm-hmm. So that is what I will say. Uh, the second thing I will say <laughs> is that uh, it is unexpectedly dusty in here, um, but I am very happy and proud to be recording this podcast with three dudes who, when asked to choose the scariest thing in book two of this book, went with that. It yeah. means a lot, and it's great. So, yeah, I mean, again, it's just rotating female panelists. <laughs> yeah, says thumbs up to you all. Well, well, well actually, actually, my my first choice was uh, trash becoming a weasel, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was just joking. I was going to jokingly first. start with <laughs> the <laughs> kid. Yeah, no, but uh, yeah. no, but seriously though, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm reading this, and, and and this is something that's that's left out of the miniseries. And going back, I, this, so this was I was really surprised when this came around because yeah. this is one of the one of the few things that is totally left out, and I was not aware what happened mm. in the book. So I was very surprised when we got to it, and um, so not only was I surprised, but I, I had, out of all the things that happened in this book, and, and another cemetery thing where we see Mother Abigail when she returns, um, which is disgusting. But uh, I, I had the most visceral reaction to this. Like I was, li- I was uncomfortable reading it, and I was just like, and I was very, I was like, well, no wonder this didn't make it to TV, you know. Yeah. But yeah, um, ABC execs were probably like, "Hey, Stephen, we need to yeah, maybe we should we need cut, to cut this these whole three scene, pages you know, here." <laughs> Mick was very upset. You know, they shot a lot of that, but no. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I know I just said I wasn't going to speak anymore, but I'm really glad to know that. I appreciate when an adaptation maybe knows its limits. Like I'm just pretty. I haven't seen this miniseries yet, but I'm pretty sure that maybe they weren't in a position to tackle no, the reality no. oh, God, no, of no. sexual and gendered violence. I mean, if this was on HBO today, I think you sure. do that. Uh, HBO still gets it wrong but, sometimes. But well, yeah. well, I just mean like we, on Game of Thrones. I mean, we would have we would probably see it. Oh yes, uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, but but, but in the nineties yeah. on uh, ABC or whatever, no, they weren't absolutely. Doing like, right. They were getting away with a lot. Today on ABC, yeah. that wouldn't but, be there. But again, like, we're talking about the miniseries. But it's like an hour <laughs> after Full House series. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Oh, Coming up, Larry's in the tunnel on the um, stand. Any more zoo thoughts or? Oh, I just got to do it. I'm sorry. Oh, no. ABC executives were looking at the script and and they got to a point where there was the routine and. Um, uh, habitual rape of female characters, including a 12-year-old girl. Uh, and w- the executive looks up and says to the men in charge, this scene, you've got to cut it out. Oh, oh yikes. Nailed it. Dan, you know, Dan, Dan, are Dan's you listening? Gonna, Dan's going to love it. <laughs> Dan is so you, super TGIF fan. Dan Caffrey is so jealous right now that he's not uh, here know, to, to share his TGIF tales. We should just keep talking about it. No, I'm just kidding. Caffrey's going to um, rewind that. that that's, that's my personal cemetery. That's my that's my scariest thing, talking you know, about that for hours. We may I'm not... guessing that, that Caffrey is actually going to underscore this whole mini section with the theme from Fox. Oh, I hope so. I hope so. What I hope happened? when Dan's editing this, he just stops, and then all of a sudden, it's just Dan talking for five, <laughs> like 30 minutes or about he could TGIF. Just play, he could just find a clip online of TGIF. Oh, right? nice. Yeah, right? We may not know the most about Stephen King, but we promise we can transition into from information about the zoo into a fun conversation about TGIF <laughs> on ABC's old Friday Night lineup. Was, um, uh, was Family Matters part of the TGIF lineup? Yeah. I, I believe Fun so. Fun fact, my uh, my wedding ended with the theme song for uh, Family Matters. Oh, boy. Fun fact, did yeah. you know that um, Stephen Urkel became Stefan? Oh, I, I did. Um, because of a machine. And did you know, originally, that show was That's more t- believable than that. Yeah. <laughs> Fun fact, did you know that my partner and his best friend, who are big fans of the Portland Trailblazers, call C.J. McCollum the Stefan Urkel of basketball. Ooh, I like that. I'm happy you mentioned um, the Blazers 
Uh, let's go off on a little tangent here. Oh, no, here we go. <laughs> no. uh, hey, we got uh, John Allison, Carpenter over here. Allison, if you have to, who's a super Laker fan, I know. love John Carpenter. Um, Allison, if you had to decide between Dame Lillard and CJ McCollum, who are you keeping on the Trailblazers and who are you going to try to trade away? Who is the future of that franchise? Oh, I don't think they're, first of all, I don't think they're trading right Oh, I think they might have to get rid of one of them. Uh, well, not Dame Lillard. Okay, you're he's gonna not keep going Dame. anywhere. No, they're going to keep he him. He is committed to being like first. First of all, like a franchise linchpin. I, I think he probably really likes the idea of that. Second, Portland loves him, and mm-hmm. he loves Portland. True story. He lives in Portland full time oh. with his mother. Oh, oh, that's great. Yeah, no, he's so does CJ. CJ also lives with his mother. He's trying to live up to Lillard's but standards. Dame's not going anywhere. But I also love CJ. Fun fact, I saw the very first minutes that C.J. McCollum ever played in the NBA. Because after he got drafted, he got hurt, so he never played. So then the next season, he it was their game, I think, against the Heat. So I think it was the first NBA game I ever saw. And I saw his first like five minutes of play. He only played about five minutes, and he made a three. So I feel like I saw the beginning of a great story. (laughs) Fun fact, I love sports. And uh, earlier I said my personal cemetery was talking about TGIF. Uh, I was wrong. I was dead <laughs> He's wrong. Talking about, the NBA. talking about sports while trying to talk about uh, scary I'll things just in say this. books. But... We won't do this anymore. But if you're but if you're a person who's like, man, you know what I wish this podcast had more of? Banter about the Portland Trailblazers. I encourage you to follow Justin and I on Twitter. Yes. <laughs> it's right. pretty much the only way oh, yeah. we interact is that we banter about like, the Portland Trailblazers. Oh, like, oh, I love when Dane destroyed Dwight Howard's Rockets and the buzzer beater five years ago, two years ago. Anyway, and if you really want to get, we hate Dwight Howard here at the podcast as well. We, well, who doesn't? If you want incessant uh, manic tweets about the the Miami Heat, uh, <laughs> you can uh, you can follow me on there also. And I uh, uh, sporadically um, sprout out like you know thirty tweets about the same play, um, and then just banish. Yeah, and if you want to <laughs> like, see tweets every like six months, follow me. Uh, <laughs> where I none of I, them will be about none sports. of them will be about sports. It yeah. might be something randomly uh, and and and. Uh, now, that Jeff, was a good sandwich. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Justin likes to tease me about sports all the time. He'll wait till we're in a crowded elevator and start asking me about the game last night. <laughs> and I'll, I'll just, I'll just, it's just the most blanket. I'll go as long as I can saying the most general things like, well, you know, I, you know, it, you, it, you could see it coming, you know, and just trying to get around it. But um, so um, again, wow, we went from the zoo to TGIF to the Portland Trailblazers. So, hey. Speaking of transitions, let's transition right back into the cemetery. <laughs> yeah. Uh, who so, wants to go next with some more horrifying moments from book two? I got one. Um, okay. You know, I, I we had mentioned uh, the you know Nadine with the Ouija board yes. before. I'm not going to go there yet. I'm going to oh. let someone else take that one. Oh one scene that really was jarring to me, um, and once again, I'm opening up the book and I'm going to read a part of it. Hey. Um, you love that. Um, <laughs> it's like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Um, I didn't even need to read it before coming here. You know, I, uh, it's a scene where Nadine is uh, going back to her house to pick up her things for one, you know, one last time and sees Joe sitting there. And it's not Leo anymore. It's Joe. Oh, right. right. And, and she's trying to basically, to basically stick up for her decision and say, like, no, you have, you know, you have, you know, you have Larry, you have Larry and Lucy. You don't need them. You don't need them. Uh, I mean, you don't need me. Um, just go with them. You're going to be fine. And she's, she's, he's just sitting there and just, just watching from the darkness in the, in the corner and just staring her down. And it's just these judgmental eyes that she keeps describing. And this sequence right here, um, there's a a few lines here, uh, that are just really terrifying. Um, 
Nadine backed out awkwardly and stood on the top step for a moment, trying to gather her wits. It suddenly occurred to her that the whole thing might have been a hallucination, brought on by her own guilt feelings. Guilt at abandoning the boy, guilt at making Larry wait too long, guilt at the things she and Harold had done, and the much worse things which were waiting. Perhaps there had been no real boy in that house at all. No more real than the phantasms of Poe, the beating of the old man's heart, sounding like a watch wrapped in cotton, or the raven perched on the bust of Apollo's. Tapping, ever tapping at my chamber door, she whispered aloud without thinking, and that made her utter a horrid, croaking little giggle. Probably not much different from the sounds of ravens actually made. Still, she had to know. And then she talks about how she looks inside the 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 you know the room back in the house just to make sure that he was actually in there. And after describing the whole you know the house, uh, King says, and sitting in the corner chair, some dead woman's little boy, clad only in his underpants, sitting, still sitting, sitting as he had sat before. Nadine fled. It's just like yeah, that's unnerving. It's really yeah. creepy. It's like one of those. Some of my scariest moments in life have been. I always used to say, you, you know, people always say, "Oh, I don't." You know, there's no such thing as ghosts. You're never going to see ghosts. Blah blah. I feel like the times you are going to see something is when you are either leaving the house or you think you. Oh, you go. Oh, let me grab something real quick, and you go back in, mm-hmm. and then you see something, and, and and just that that tension of wanting to get out of there as soon as possible just really uh it just like chilled me to the bone and that that sequence just like i could not shake that image of just that kid just sitting in the corner in the pitch black you know like living room just oh yeah, it creeped another, me out. another sweet treat no very sweet yeah <laughs> uh, not very sweet treat. that's like actually kind of gross but yeah you know it that my pick is actually kind of similar in tone uh, which is a sequence we've already kind of referenced but not really talked about which is the tornado mm-hmm. oh yeah um and as great as the, them running and Nick somehow being stunned into not inaction and Tom saving his life, all that is really great. But the chunk that really gets me, there's a favorite line and a favorite paragraph, and they're not the same. So um, here's, here's the first. Tom had not stopped to inventory the damage. He was fleeing the barn as if the devil himself was at his heels. He looked back just once, his eyes huge and almost comically terrified. Nick could not resist a look back over his shoulder and into the storm cellar. The stairs pitched and yawed downward into shadow, old wood splintered and sunken in the center of each riser. He could see littered straw on the floor and and two sets of hands protruding from the shadow. The fingers had been stripped down to the bone by rats. If there was anyone else down there, Nick did not see him, nor did he want to. Mm. Um, and that for all of, there's another paragraph I really love, but it's kind of got a little like in the middle because mm. of a random predator reference. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah it does. Um, which just like spoils the whole paragraph. Obviously an update. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But the sentence that really makes this whole sequence for me where they're in, they're, they sense Flagged presence in the tornado and then they're in the cellar and there are bodies down there and the bodies don't bother them. What bothers them is the sense that something or someone is down there with them. Uh, after they emerge, the line that actually gets me, the one that made shivers go up and down my spine, was um, someone was in there, Tom said abruptly. Yeah. The very Just point. someone was in yeah, there. That it's the confirmation of ugh. what you're trying to convince yourself is your own paranoia. I just yeah. got chills. Right? Yeah. Yeah, it's because great. it's all scary, but it's, it's not truly frightening. 
until someone was in there. Yeah. Oh. Well, it reminds me of Halloran in the attic in The Shining. Yeah. Um, yeah. The light, oh, yeah. When the he senses yeah. something in Something's there. Off, yeah. And he Oof. and he just can't tell. And he just leaves the whole like attic door open without even and gets reprimanded by Holler, um by um Ullman. Yeah, I love I, I love that. And that that's when King those stingers like like yeah. works so well. I, uh, I love it. It's so good. I agree with I mean everything the three uh, moments you you mentioned are terrific, and I could even go into the whole weasels cornering Mother Abigail, and you know my blood is in your fist, but she hears Flag saying that. But you know, <laughs> I don't want to get too smarmy here, but who cares? Here we go. The most terrifying part of book two for me is any time the Justice League of America gets together, <laughs> uh, aka the permanent free zone housing oh, community gets together, <laughs> because there's nothing worse than when you realize. <laughs> I mean, look. There's nothing worse when you. Let's <laughs> There we go. But when you are at the halfway point of an epic novel and you are loving this book so far, you're like, I can't believe how great this is. We're burning through, and now we're going to spend time with these. At this point, like these superheroes, essentially talking about. I know. I look here. Going back to what you said earlier about Glenn. I love the moments where it's just, especially when it's just like Glenn and Stu talking, especially when they first meet mm-hmm. and talking about the world as it is and the world as it was. I find minutes of meetings very boring. <laughs> and th- this is absolutely no exception. And so you think you're just going to get that one chapter, like, oh, from the journal of, um, of Franny Goldsmith. That's fine, whatever. Yeah, it's ridiculous. And now we're going to k- keep pouring in about writing thank you letters yeah and let's hey let's let's go about it this way so we get x involved in the committee and, and keep x out like this could have been condensed so much like into into a short short moment of a chapter and we're talking about large swaths of book two namely the last third of book two it's just this weird again i talked about it earlier but i cannot express enough how much i have a problem with focusing on like this near utopia and how uninteresting it is for me. So it basically at this point in the book, personally, in terms of like my, my skin crawling was thinking to myself, <laughs> Oh my God, are we, are, am I going to be stuck in a loop of reading about somebody's objections to something going on in a meeting for the next 300 pages? I got 700 pages left of this book. And every time I read it, I always forget about this moment in the book. I guarantee in six years, I will forget about this. I will forget about these meetings and I will start reading the book again thinking, Oh, this is even better than I remember it being. And I'll get to that italics at the top of the chapter that says from the minutes at the ad hoc committee meeting. And I'll just say, oh my God, the loop is the loop is complete. So I, again, I can't. I mean, book two for me is the least of the three books, and it's because of these. The just uh, there's terror in the zoo. There's terror in the tornado. There's terror all over the place. But my God, the terror of reading boring passages in a, in a long book. Nothing comes close. I so there's my soapbox. I've been waiting to say well, this for like four months. How boring great. this oh, is. Boy. So that's, there's my terror. There's um, my terror. Justin, I love that you've discovered the literary equivalent of <laughs> this didn't need to be a meeting. This could have been an email. Yes. <laughs> and this was, unfortunately, maybe if this was written now, it would be like, so um, they, they got the electricity up and running enough to, uh, to write an email about the, con- the ratification of the reply Constitution. All. Um, reply all. Ad hoc. Reply ad hoc. All. Uh, Let's put it to a vote. <laughs> Email me personally. Keep up the CCs. You know, it's a it's Slack just... transcript. <laughs> so, there we go. Uh, yeah. Any, any yeah, other? Tr- truly Again, terrifying. I think Mikey, you touched uh, upon this. The, 
you touched upon in book one, Mike, you touched upon the fact that really book one is where the most horrific moments are. And where book two and three, there not as much going down. No. Yeah. no. I mean, there's one sequence. Do you want to go over it? Yeah, we could talk about let's it. Let's do it. Let's 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 uh, <laughs> let's pull the Ouija board out. Yeah. Oh wait, you know what? Before we get to the Ouija board, I want to let somebody know out there, Randall Colburn. Okay, hey, guess what? Oh no, here we. Speaking go. Speaking of Ouija boards, you're damn right. Ouija Origin of Evil was 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 started off pretty good, but it, it's all it ends really bad. Yeah. Right, the Randall? scary parts are I'm not coming good. back. The I, I heard the last episode, Randall. In, in, in Randall's defense, the scary parts are scary. Absolutely, like the parts again. The parts where you see the entity off in the, in the hallway. Great. Unexplained. Great. But then here comes the CGI. Randall will talk again about this. But I, I did listen to the last episode. I want to let you know. But anyway, who wants to talk about yeah. Nadine and the Ouija board? Yeah, speaking of, you know, and again, this is, I don't like how Nadine's, you know, trajectory is just set in stone. Mm-hmm. But I did love this little bit of backstory, um, which was new to me <laughs> as a reader, uh, about nadine when she's younger and her experience with this ouija board and how it, it, it just it just got under my skin i've never been one that's been like frightened of of the ouija board i know a lot of people are uh no seriously though Little i mean I, I, I think i remember having a conversation <laughs> with my mom and i think she she just didn't want it in the house and i it was one of those first instances to me where that solidified like well maybe there is something in my closet mom you know like it was like you know why they didn't want this stupid game that like you know it's just supposed to be like a game you know in the house it just like it, it gave this other worldliness to it and i think i also saw the exorcist that year and i started getting really scared Captain of, of, of religious things which i think is also what was what's very scary to me about this book is um is religion and how scary it can actually be if religion is yep. legit <laughs> nadine 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 how i love my nadine to be my to love my nadine to be my queen if you if you if you are pure for me if you are clean for me if you are you are dead for me you are i said so that well, that that's the Ouija board. as scary as i remember yeah. <laughs> well it's but all no, caps and no, italicized but, <laughs> but also i love that i love to love nadine yeah. um mm-hmm. i love that line and i it just it creeped me out. Um, it reminded me of reminded me honestly that little segment reminded me of something from Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Hmm. Which hmm. scary stories? Well, uh, you know the, the oh, you just mean in general? Just like, the, it just reminded me yeah, of yeah, that little snippet of a story like yeah, uh, Lati Dati Walker or something. Uh, like, Mi, Mi Dati Walker, excuse me. Okay, uh, yeah, the one with the Doctor uh, Lewis. Uh, uh, is that Linchy Kinchy Kali Wally? Uh, dingo Dingo Dingo. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if honestly though, if I I, feel, I do have a feeling a lot of our, our listeners have. Uh, read the Alvin Schwartz collection of short stories, scary stories to tell in the dark. But if you have not, oh yeah, even though they were terrifying as a you know an eight nine year old, some of those still hold up today. I, I can't believe I was allowed to read those. And if you haven't, if you haven't read it, definitely check out George Irving's uh, oh, audio yeah. versions of those stories. We did recently, equally yeah. as entertaining and uh, pretty frightening. And most are found <laughs> on YouTube. So just Google scary stories to tell in the dark and enjoy. We went down that rabbit hole. Uh, uh, over Christmas, and uh, let's just say oh, yeah. this this guy didn't sleep so well. Uh, there's another, and now correct me if I'm wrong. I read from two different books. Um, I read from the the anchor book, uh, but I also mm-hmm. read from uh, the the um, illustrated version of uh, the Stan Stephen King. That's which an awesome edition. Is, it's a very nice edition. Um, it's pretty much the same thing as the paperback <laughs> for the <laughs> most part. I mean, um, but it's great. Uh, However, it um, looks great. The, the the departure of the scouts is that in book two where they go off? 
I'm pretty sure. Yes. It's right. It is. Yeah. I think it's at the end and of book two, right? This one of the and this is a different kind of scary. And Stephen King's really good at doing this, and he did this a lot in Salem's lot. Um, where he ends the the chapters with this little kind of poignant oh, sentence where he kind of foreshadows something or blatantly tells you something about the, the future, which reminds me also of Brian K. Vaughn's saga, which he does uh, in a brilliant way. Um, but uh, there's a scene where uh, Stu is recounting um, how Sue, Sue comes back. She's been off and she brings this this dog back and it's just like really fun. Like, oh, you know, Adam and Eve, Kojak and the new dog, the new puppy, and it's all happy. Um, but the end of that chapter just ends with, but it was the morning the two of them left Boulder that Stu remembered watching them ride off toward the Denver Boulder Turnpike because no one in the zone ever saw Dan and Jergens again. Mm. And that creeped me out yeah. because it also made me really excited to see like, well, what is going to happen to these, to our scouts? You know, like I just, it, it, it just really unnerved me reading that because because up until that point he hadn't really done a ton of stuff like that um in terms of like laying out what happens to a character you know everything's still like really up in the air but when he when just saying that just really and i, I love dana she's good she's great and she's awesome in book three but yeah we'll, we'll talk about that later but uh yeah just it, i i was like it just put me it put me off it, it, it disturbed me what about the uh change falling out of the corpses that was oh, uh, oh the during the big cleanup. Cordwood. Yeah, the cordwood, cordwood. during the cordwood. The cordwood corpses. When uh, they uh, talk about how uh, Chad Norris and Kellogg, <laughs> Kellogg, um, <laughs> are pulling the dump truck full of the bodies, and uh, they they're talking about how Harold heard a sound that would haunt him in his dreams, and that was the sound of change falling from the pockets of the dead men and women as Chad and his helpers worked with their rakes, spreading the corpses evenly. The coins falling on the plastic made a sound that reminded Harold absurdly of tiddlywinks. <laughs> One more time, Mike. What was that? Tiddlywinks. Okay. I want to make sure we got that on record. sickly sweet stench of corruption drifted up in the warm air. Mm. The sickly sweet. The, wick- you know, the wickedly I, I, talented. I know. <laughs> Nadelle Dezine. Uh, no. Uh, another scary thing I thought was, you know, Mother Abigail makes a lot of pies. And um, she describes she's making, you know, strawberry pie. Strawberry rhubarb pie, my favorite. <laughs> Apple pie, cherry pie, you know. These things are going to waste. They're sitting there on the sill, cooling off on the sill, yeah. and that is a tragedy. That is that was a scary. <laughs> that is, you you know, know, she leaves. She leaves, and, and 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 I was wondering, like, who did they eat all that pie? Is no. did they get to finish it? I doubt it. You know, she's making pies all day. Well, it's be if Ralph Brenner came in and, and <laughs> no, was Ralph looking for, he'd probably was eating the pies. <laughs> oh, God. Can well, I suggest that that is an appropriate point? Absolutely, for I was going to say. Yeah. You know what? We've been we've been dying. W-W-R-C-T. We've had courses upon courses upon courses. I think our our dinner is done. It's time to set up the coffee and have a little pound cake. After all you've been taught, everyone in bad mama, everything in the sin. Come to your closet and pray. Ask to be forgiven. He's a nice boy, mom. You like him. You really like him, mama. Okay, well, who wants to serve us our first slice? Ugh, gross. That's disgusting. <laughs> well, I got a long list, but uh, so if anyone uh, wants to go first. Uh, be... I, well, I only have really one entry, so I'll go. Um, on the, uh, I think it's uh, 1017 on the, the paperback. Uh, there's a mention of uh, oil slick and drippy dick. <laughs> <laughs> What's and the that's context? Out of context. I have no clue what the context <laughs> you is. Have the I, notes there. I think I took a picture of this with, with you know with my phone when I was reading it because I, I again I normally let Dan have his day and Mike, but I I, I the, the drippy dick was just too I couldn't pass it up. 
Okay, well, I guess well before we get into the, the heavy servings of the pound cake, this isn't so much about sex as it is about uh, sexuality. And it's when, um, <laughs> God bless him, when Stu is saying goodbye to Susan and Dana. Please listen to the following. <laughs> oh, oh, here we go. Out of nowhere, we are literally over a thousand pages into the novel at this point. He waved and they pulled over. He thought he had never seen Dana looking prettier. Her hair was tied behind her with a bright green silk scarf and she was wearing a rawhide coat open over jeans and a chambray shirt. A bedroll was strapped on behind her. Stuart, she cried and waved to him, smiling. Lesbian, he thought doubtfully. <laughs> a lesbian is in italics, by the way, so I did not embellish that. I understand you're off on a little trip, he said. For sure, and you never saw me. Nope, Stu said. Never did. Smoke? Blah, 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 blah. Take care of Franny, blah, 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 blah. She smiled. Oh, I'm sorry. She looked at him and Stu planted a soft kiss on her mouth. Good luck. That's not very fair. He actually probably said something like, good luck. <laughs> she smiled. You have to do it twice for really good luck. Didn't you know that? He kissed her again more slowly and thoroughly this time. Lesbian, he wondered again. What? what? <laughs> this is like the most goofy. I mean, I know it's 1976, 77, whenever he wrote this, but... It's just very goofy and how aloof Stu is when it comes to how a lesbian would act or whatnot. I don't know. That, that just really stood out to me. And my, and my notes things, was just lesbian in, in, in caps in the page numbers. I don't like, know how what? things were what? in Arnett, Texas uh, back then. Yeah, I'll tell you what. They probably, 70s. I can guarantee, I, I would guarantee today that Arnett, Texas would not be very tolerant of, um, <laughs> of lesbians. I, if there's any Arnett, Texas listeners gotta, yeah. out there, I apologize. But let's just, we'll call it what it is. Uh, I've got a teeny tiny slice, um, but it gets bonus points for being uh, physiologically wrong. Oh, um, right. So uh, <laughs> this is during the Joe slash Leo discovery of musical prodigy abilities, oh. right? Um, and it comes after the lyric by whack it, by the whacking on my black cat bone, which I think is appropriate. The boy's open, <laughs> delighted grin lit those eyes up, made them into something, Larry realized, that would be apt to make the muscles and any young girl's thighs loosen a little. Hmm. You know, I, I had a uh, many a crush <laughs> on many a delighted young person when I was a young person, and I never was like, oh, my thighs are loose. Oh. Wow. What's this I just sense this loosening of my thighs. What? That must mean that I'm attracted. No, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. Usually it's like, oh, my God, I'm terrified. I like it. And then <laughs> no, no, there's no thigh loosening. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll liken that to the weak in the knees thing. I, like, what? I never, never. got oh, Well, see, that's more never. like... It's physiological, but not really, because it's short of breath, lightheaded, yeah. weak knees, etc. Yeah. Um, so, so, so no, no, no thigh reaction. No, it's like well, I'm assuming what he's suggesting is that the thighs are looser, so they're more likely to spread. But like, Ugh, that's even more. It's even can you more imagine if, if he gave it more descriptive uh, there? Uh, it's even uh, more oh, pound boy. cakey. Yeah, oh, it's no. just it's just real gross. Yeah, but hey, um, apparently, and you know what, Allison? He had a real delighted grin. That's why we have our rotating female panelists. Yeah, I, you know, the next female panelist that is me <laughs> might have you? a different opinion. <laughs> yeah, because I, I, when I read that, I was like, I was like, oh yeah, they probably are. Like, that's they, right. They, I was, these, I was born two, to believe these two, that. These two hunks playing guitar, you know, I was like, oh, I yeah. sort of <laughs> wish that there actually was a rotating panel of female guests. Who were all named Allison, Bell, so that you yeah, couldn't actually tell the difference between those. I should just try to uh, to adopt a different alter every time I'm on the show. Salison Alemaker, something like that. Yeah, Salison <laughs> Alemaker. 
Alright, boys. That's my girls. drag name, actually. Oh, oh. Mike's, Mike's <laughs> been right. really quiet. We've uh, got our forks and knives ready, Mike. Here you ready? we go. Right. Serve it up. I'm, I'm glad you had a taste of uh, the pound cake and now that you're you're ready for, you know, what um, Chubba Rothman, when I was younger, <laughs> used to look forward to four or five pieces of birthday cake. Well, I'll tell you what, my, th- <laughs> hey, um, my thighs are loosening just uh, hearing you talking yeah, about this. Yeah, my thighs are pliant. Let me tell you this. You're going you're gonna to get uh, a whole bakery of pound cake. Um <laughs> On page 515, and this is all going to be from the Anchor Books edition. 515. Um, what we have, 515. Like oh, we're going all the way back. We're going all the way back, baby. Uh, 518, when Nick Andrus sleeps with Julie. Uh, and Allison actually already hinted at this one before. Uh, he, which is Nick, put his hands out, perhaps meaning to take her by the shoulders, but he found her breasts instead. That was the end of any resistance he might have had. Coherent thought left his mind as well. He lowered to the floor and had her. I just want to say, if you accidentally touch my breasts when you're attempting to touch my shoulders, which, first of all, don't do either of those things to a woman you don't know, but if you're going for the shoulder and you touch the boob accidentally, quote-unquote, I'm going to accidentally kick you in the nuts really hard. <laughs> maybe or, or non-accidentally. Know, maybe she nuts. jumped up in the air and... <laughs> you know, That's my joke, too. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any sense. She was you know, throwing the first pitch of the baseball game. It's like, it's like, it's like, King, it's like King forgot. It was like, oh, wait, no, he, he, he can't see. <laughs> you know, like, like, he can't hear her talk, but he can see. This well, you're is probably you, you, while you're running, wonder you know while you're reading, you're probably wondering like, well, how, how, King, come on, don't leave me in the dark. Usually, you tell us how the breasts are, you know, how they are. <laughs> um, and of course, two 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 pages later, he does. Um, uh, <laughs> Hi, y'all! Julie trilled and ran down the street toward Tom. Her breasts bouncing sweetly under her tight midi top. Tom's goggle had been big to begin with. Now it grew bigger still. Like, okay. Uh, that just makes me his sad. His goggle I know, was uh, almost as big as her sweetly bouncing breath. Uh, that makes me sad, though, because I know that the next part is going to be about the whole Pepto-Bismol thing. <laughs> I'm getting sad again. Oh, uh, no, no, no. <laughs> we're, 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 I'm not doing any more. I, I skipped the Pepto. I'm going to, now I'm going to 6.03. And uh, we're uh, talking about uh, a little... Some, some weird fluids uh, involving Mo- uh, Mother Abigail. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, this is a long segment um, right here, but basically says, and sometimes at the instant of her climax, she would think of the corn, the bland corn with its roots planted, not deep with, but wide. She would think of flesh and then the corn when it was all over and her husband laid beside her. The sex smell would be in the room. The smell of the spunk the man had shot into her the smell of the juices she made to smooth his way and it was a smell like husked corn mild and sweet a goodish smell let me tell you if there's one character you want to hear that about it's mother <laughs> abigail <laughs> honestly some of that's kind of nice imagery you know and then it gets to the, the spunk part and then yeah. you're kind of uh, i don't know i suspect if uh any fluid coming out of you smells like corn <laughs> I, you Check should your immediately diet. start drinking water and really try to rebalance your diet. Yeah, t- tighten those thighs and uh, yeah, start rethinking. Uh, <laughs> Mother, they, no mention of her thighs loosening. But oh, but they alas. do have mention of her bowel movements and, oh. and plenty because she's old. Um, uh, <laughs> she's human. Let the old woman have her God. God was as necessary for old women as enemas and Lipton tea bags. <laughs> now, hold on. Um... I work at a place where uh, the, there's a lot of Lipton tea bags for oh, people God. of all ages, and I don't know where they're coming from. I don't know where King's coming from with that. Maybe ni- 1976, 77 yeah, was a different era. It might have, must have been. Lit, uh, he gets a nickel for every time that somebody reads the word Lipton. <laughs> there you Lipton. go. 
Yeah, well, you should do the James Lipton biography. He'll get a lot of... Uh... <laughs> I like Lipton Ice Day. Um, reminds me of tennis. Uh, so on page 644, <laughs> uh, this is actually Caffrey's favorite. Abigail's eyes noted the way Ralph squired June over to the wrecker so she could look at the radio equipment and approved. The woman had a good set of hips on her. There would be a fine porch door down there between them. She could have just about as many little ones as she wanted. Porch door. A fine porch door? Porch door. Hmm. Porch door. Yeah. I don't know if I've ever heard that expression before. Anybody here? Porch door? You only find a porch <laughs> door on a really loose porch. <laughs> Make sure we got that on record. <laughs> um, oh, boy. Yeah, these are, uh, these are great. Mike? I want to point out Mike's notes, by the way. There's, there's bullet points for all these page numbers. And then for pound cake, there's actually an exclamation point after pound cake. Yeah, I thought that was pretty nice. Um, we go to 707 for Harold's fantasies. And uh, we, all know, we all know Harold loves those fantasies. Or he has some. Um, at age 16, he, he had given up Burroughs and Stevenson and Robert Howard in favor of other fantasies. Fantasies that were both well-loved and much hated. Not of rockets or pirates, but of girls in silk see-through pajamas kneeling before him on satin pillows while Harold the, the Great <laughs> while Harold the Great lolled naked on his throne, ready to chastise them with small leather whips with silver-headed canes. They were bitter fantasies through which every pretty girl at Ungunquit High School had strolled at one time or another. These daydreams always ended with a gathering expletive in his loins, an explosion of seminal fluid that was more cursed than pleasure. And then he would sleep, the sperm drawing to a scale, drying to a scale on his belly. Every doggy has his day. I think that's more about Harold being a... It's a, a creep! But yeah, there you go. Yeah, it's a creep. <laughs> not, um, not to shame him for his sexual proclivities, but uh, I'll shame him for his... Oh, I've never I'll seen shame him for the idea that all the women he meets should service him. Oh, that's very true. And then yeah. the, the S&M uh, description is See, King's, interesting. King, King's just really interested in fluids, you know? Yeah. And now, if you're talking about like a tube neck corpse and you want to talk, throw some fluids in there, sure. But really? I mean, Spunk, it, seed, it, and seed. The, the three yeah, S's for it, Stephen it King. <laughs> the only fluid I want to talk about right, right now is this crisp cerveza that Matt and I are both drinking. Ooh. <laughs> We like alcohol. That's got an S in it too. El Sully. El Sully. Uh, well, the next one comes from uh, Justin's favorite character, kid, um, on uh, page seven thirty six. Wait, can uh, I read this? Oh yeah, you want to you want to read it? Go for oh, it. Page I'll, I'll do my no, best. He'll get, he'll get it all wrong. I bet. Oh, you get to, uh, this is a good one. Go right which, here. Which one is that, Mike? Right, right here, seven thirty six. Alright, here's my best kid impersonation. Ready? Oh boy. Uh, don't get too close to the uh, the mic. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Where's the Playboy channel? <laughs> that was a good one, Trashy. I mean, they never showed guys getting right down eating their hair pie, munching the old bearded clam, you know what I mean? But some of those ladies had legs went right up to their chins. You know what the motherfucker I'm talking about? So when we do, inevitably, our mm -hmm. casting mm -hmm. of the stands, oh, yeah. I think I want to make it clear right now that there was absolute, this role is taken. It's not available. I'm really, really sorry, um... Eddie Redmayne. It's not available. <laughs> Eddie Redmayne. The great Eddie Redmayne. Wouldn't it be funny if I did the audiobook for this and I just read everybody with my normal voice, man or woman, <laughs> and then except for the kid, all of a sudden it's like this root toot toot and wild it Actually, wilderness. Dustin, that would be actually really true to the book because it's that out of place. <laughs> it's, hey, there you go. Hey, look. Hey, back off the kid, all right? He's a weird guy. <laughs> you know, it's also, uh, you know, speaking of weird, 
more bowel movements with uh, Mother Abigail. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, she talks about uh, she had her little accidents from time to time, too, as old folks often did. But as long as she could do her own wash, those accidents didn't have to be anybody's business but her own. Oh, that's kind of nice. But, you know, on 862, we get to hear about someone's skid marks. Uh, and this is, if you want to talk about, you know, bringing a, uh, a character down a notch or two, um, here's, here's, here's a good way to do that. Um, they're your clothes too, Mr. Stuart Redman. You may be a founding father and all that, but you still leave an occasional skid mark in your under drawers. Yeah. 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 I don't. I mean, no, it's, that's uh, need to it's the forerunner to everybody but... poops. The classic children's book. <laughs> yeah, pretty yeah. much. Pretty much. Um, oh yeah, this is a weird one also. So on age sixty-five, uh, Franny's watching them, or she, Franny's doing laundry, and right. uh, she, King writes a pair of blue jeans floated to the surface, and he stomped them back down. This is Stu in there. Sending a creamy squirt of soap suds onto the lawn, Franny thought it looks a little like. <laughs> no, away with that! Away with that! Unless you want to laugh yourself into a miscarriage. Oh my god! Yeah, uh, these two are definitely enjoying the honeymoon phase. I think oh Stu and Franny god. have sex at least seven times in like a, a twenty-page. I've never wanted to section. be Stu or Franny more in, in book two, where every <laughs> co- every conversation they have, whether it's an argument or just any any kind of passing, like, "Hey, did you put that in the fridge? Hey, are you wearing anything under that dress? You know." And then they are upstairs doing it every single scene. Well, there's there's you know just a page before that I I almost missed over this one. Um, this is a, a little stinger between uh, Stu and Franny. And then he was doing things to her. Even on the stairs, he was doing things to her. Making her <laughs> naked. Making her hot. Making her love him. That ends the chapter. Making her love him. That sounds like a ZZ Top lyric. Yeah. I know. <laughs> I know. You'll see that ZZ Top song soon. We'll, we'll record that and put that up. That was ZZ Top with making her naked. Well, if, if you actually thought that it was going to be just Mother Abigail with the bowel movements. No, 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 no. This is Stephen King we're talking about here. Um... Franny, when uh, she's talking about her, we were talking earlier about, you know, things that happen when we're either turned on or scared or, or whatnot. Um, apparently, uh, Franny has a little uh, bowel movement problem when she gets scared. Um, uh, whoever she is, I hope she's no better at locks than I am, Franny thought, and then had to squeeze both hands over her mouth to stop an insane bray of laughter. That was when she looked down at her cotton slacks and saw how badly she had been frightened. At least she didn't scare the shit out of me, Franny thought. At least not yet. The laughter bubbled up again, hysterical and frightened, just below the surface. I, my note for that was, good God. <laughs> and then, literally a page later, King doubles down and writes, next time you go housebreaking, Francis, Rebecca, remember wear your continence pants. I mean, like, like oh. why is he so obsessed with this? Like, I, 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 how many times do you think about shitting your pants? Like, I don't Maybe he was eating clam chowder at the time and was having some stomach issues and... He's, you know, in Maine. Maybe in books at the time, people just weren't writing about that. And in order to make them feel human, and for, he felt like, well, I don't, people think, anyone, I don't think people are connected to these characters. So, uh, you know, we don't see them eating ever. We don't see them do Maybe we need to see them shitting and talking about that for a little while. Or at least have them thinking about shitting, at the very least. You guys, you all ready for another sex stinger? Oh, oh boy. Please. Uh, on page 919, yeah. we're almost done. I mean, we've had a lot of pound cake. I'm starting to get a little, uh, like, a little uh, full, a little diabetic. I, um, I've got diabetes now. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so on page 919, okay, fine, Stu said, and joined her on the bed. Say, 
are you wearing under that shirt? A big, strong man like yourself should be able to find that out with any help, Fran said primly. And King says, it turned out to be nothing. Whoa! <laughs> Yowzers! <laughs> dot, yeah. dot, dot. Oh, yeah. boy. King, you dog. Yeah. Um, and then there's that whole weird thing where Stu wants Franny to stand up and have everyone see her. That was kind of weird. That's on page 939. Wait, 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 wait. Isn't that during the meeting? <laughs> yeah, it's during the meeting. That's, oh, oh. It, he just it, said, I, just proud I want you to stand up. I want everybody to see you in your pretty dress. Yeah. That, that's, that's stand up, Franny. Good. Let them see you. Uh, oh, that's pound cake. I guess, could you imagine? All right, let's, let's change the situation then. Let's imagine that Stu's up there, and then they're, and he's like, Oh, drinking, drinking a beer. Stand up, Franny. Let me see what you look like out of the dress on. Like, well, yeah. Well, yeah, was yeah like he a... was standing up there drinking a beer and belligerently saying, Hey, Franny, stand hey. up. I want to see how pretty you well, are. Well, apparently you all haven't seen oh, Rashomon. See, I'm with you. I, I would have I preferred it if, if Stu had said something like, Oh, stand up, Franny. Franny, let everybody see you in your intelligence <laughs> and <laughs> capability. And, you're, and, and, and remember how smart uh, you are. That's, that, is, yeah. that is true. Well, like, it's, just, it's, a little, you know, it's a little much. Um, and then the last one is is uh ah, it's kind of a letdown i don't know why i don't know why i went with these last two i apologize everyone this is this is when we start like <laughs> hey, actually like purging the uh the pound cake, hey we're but... talking about the stand complete and uncut now this is the losers club podcast uncut so we gotta hear it mike well um at one point uh the judge says uh <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow this just must be something Maybe that's good uh he goes, my bowels will not work properly. I'll be lonely. I'll miss my begonias. But he looked up at Larry and his eyes gleamed in the dark. I'll also be clever. Like, again, great scene yeah. with the judge leaving. And, 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 you know, obviously Larry and the judge have a little bond there. I really but love King, that scene, actually. I, I love that scene, too. But King can't let that great scene go by without a mention of bowel movements in the pants again. Well, you know, all of that pound cake, I, I have to admit, King was right and I was wrong. My thighs have been loosened. There you <laughs> go. I felt a loosening. Was it the bowel movements that set you off? It was definitely. It was that last one. It pushed me right over the edge. Thanks, Judge. Well, that concludes. I, I'm not gonna be able to walk because my knees aren't weak, but my thighs are like. <laughs> well, listen, everybody, our thighs are loosened, um, but we've had our fill of pound cake. I don't even need to use this aluminum foil to uh, wrap it all. Yeah, up. there's nothing left, folks. There's nothing left. Not even crumbs. Yeah. Um, so I think it's about time to enter into the world of King's Dominion. There's another world out there. I know there is. Okay, Mac, I know we, we've talked about this quite a lot, but you have some interesting theories about the book itself and where it relates to the rest of uh, King's universe. I or- do, and um, so I, I've got some King's Dominion stuff here, but I'll, I'll wait to talk about that. But first up, I want to start with the Dark Tower uh, connection that I think is here, and I don't think I'm crazy, but um, the path of the rat. Mm-hmm. So in the Dark Tower series, we have different paths of the beam, um, which is another reference I'll, I'll bring up in a second. But um, the paths of the beam, um, I think it takes place on the path of the turtle. Yes. Um, there's a lot of references to the turtle, and you know we'll, we'll see that when we get there. Um, and uh, the path of the bear is what, Roland's on in the, mm-hmm. the yeah in the, in the dark tower, uh, the path of the rat, and I, and I started thinking about this because I, I was like, well, what path are we on here? And there was something that just kept the the rat just kept coming up mm-hmm. in this novel, and I wasn't looking for it, but it just kept coming up, and I thought this is really really strange, um, 
and I'm going to bring a couple things back from book one because I wasn't here for that. But book one, Larry notices on page 40 of the anchor, uh, <laughs> uh, says, uh, the dashboard clock read 6.05. He had been dozing. The rat had been real, he, he saw. The rat was back. The rat had dug himself quite a hole in the dead cat's guts. He then jokingly chats to the rat as if he'll see him in Yankee Stadium and calls him old chum. So that was the first time. Then uh, page 277, uh, one woman terrified was terrified that rats were going to rise up out of the subways and inherit the earth, reminding Larry uneasily of his own thoughts the day he returned to New York, which is the rat thing we just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Page 339, his ankles were bare above the prison slippers they gave you to wear. A large, sleek rat was lunching up on Trask's leg, and that was, uh, I think, Lloyd, right? And um, Lloyd also, you know, hides the the rat rat and eats the rat. Um, Book two, Glenn mentions on page 416 that the rats were down on the ecological chain but are making a comeback. Uh, The hardback that I have, uh, 431, Larry mentions in his dreams that the big aloneness gnaws away at him like some kind of a rat. He keeps bringing up rats. And Larry seems to be haunted by rats. Um, Page 549 uh, we've got Joe uh, or Leo um, and Nadine mentions that she found Joe on the lawn and he she thinks that he was sick from a bite, a rat bite, she thinks. So they just they, there's a lot of rat mentions in the book. And I think the main thing is, is that when, you know, the, with the new Dark Tower movie coming out, and they were talking about how, you know, this is kind of like a pseudo sequel. Uh, it's like a, another round on the wheel of Ka. And that um, this time that they're on the path of the rat. And that initially put that in my head. So yeah. I think rat was in my head. And maybe I'm just pulling these out of my ass. But no, I, mean, I no, think that's... there's a lot of mention of rats. And, and it continues. And, you know, of course, we got the rat man. The rat man himself that appears um, in this book. Yeah. Rat man forgives you. But moving on to some more King's Dominion. If you don't mind, I'll, I'll chat yeah, here please. about some of these. Um, on the paperback, uh, again, Anchor, uh, <laughs> uh, chapter 28, um, there's a line of scripture, a uh, paraphrase. I think Franny um, is talking about this. Uh, yeah, it says, a line of scripture, a paraphrase occurred to her for no good reason. Before removing the moat in the neighbor's eye, attend the beam in thine own. Mm-hmm. She considered it. Moat? Beam? What sort of beam? Moon beam? Roof beam? There are also flashlight beams and beaming faces and there had been a New York mayor named Abe Beam, and we're talking about the beam of the rat or the beams from the Dark Tower. And I thought that was interesting, and I wondered if that was in the uh, cut version, or if that it was just this weird, you know, meandering thing about beams. I just yeah. thought that was strange. Right. Um, uh, another kind of a, a almost a nod or mention to Night Shift. I felt like on um, page six twenty six. Uh, they talk about the girl, the little girl Gina. Yeah, I have that. And yeah, and she had a broken leg. You want to, you want to talk? No, about no, that? go for it. Go for she, it. She had a broken leg from playing in a hayloft of a barn. She had dropped forty feet into some hay yeah. and wow. cartwheeled out, breaking her leg, which is very similar to the last rung on the ladder. Yeah. And I wonder if he kind of pulled that from his own. You know, I mean, he had already written that, so I, I wonder if that's a, I that's a weird. That. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I really kind of creeped me out too because yeah. I was just like, ooh, like you know. And also, with just with the connectivity of the world, like yeah. maybe Gina is supposed to be this version of her in this where in parallel when, universe and yeah. this beam or whatever. Interesting. Which I thought was really interesting. Uh, and then uh, my only other, well, I've got some others, but uh, I'll do that for a minute. Um, paperback uh, six thirty two, Mother Abigail references, and this won't be the first time or the last. Um, she references the shine. 
and she calls it her she says her mother used to reference it as the shining light of god Ooh. um and i think and they also obviously start referencing that a lot of people have like this this shine and justin i've got i've got the same note mac and, I, and also obviously later on um leo definitely has the shine he's the one yeah. that informs yeah. larry about harold and nadine's plans so that's kind of set out there too those are really the only notes i had interesting uh, that whole thing about the path of the rat is very interesting yeah, to me great. actually it's compelling and it, it, it goes beyond your usual like what room 237 did cooper fake the moon landing bullshit but we'll, oh, we'll, we'll talk I, about I, that but a, i know you've got a little I've more got a little room 237 section here okay in a minute, all right go for it but but mike you want to say something first uh, i got a great connection that's uh huge in the stephen king universe uh this is a big uh whopper um on page 662, Stephen King is weirdly prophetic and has Franny notice that people were wearing a Shit Happens t-shirt. Now, you're probably wondering, well, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, Stephen King talks about shit all the time. <laughs> I'm not talking about that. <laughs> I'm talking about how Stu Redman is played by Gary Sinise, who was in Forrest Gump. Who, who invented... To, wow. Who invented yeah. the Shit Happens t-shirt. Well, yeah, what can we say so, about that? I mean, <laughs> that is Ka. If you really want to go into it. Oh God! Well, um, if, if, you're, if that if the, is that the end of your references, uh, I've oh, got and some more like that. <laughs> Larry, uh, the the number, the total number of people in Larry's group is nineteen, mm. uh, as they say on page seven seventy eight. Oh, and wow, look at this! Um, I uh, there are two uh, stragglers from Pound Cake that I uh, that were put in my <laughs> uh, King's Dominion. Uh, oh boy! On page eight thirty two, Stu talks about slipping deliciously into uh, Franny, and um, um, on page eight twenty one, because her thighs were so loose. That's yeah. it's true. Her thighs are too loose and um, deliciously loose. And uh, <laughs> Abigail uh, talks about the portageon and uh, staining her dress. So there's more shit references on that. I need twenty one if you didn't get enough, but. Uh, Honestly, the only the only other thing I have, and this is a stretch, and I might have mentioned this in the last episode, is on uh, page eleven fourteen, Ralph uh, in the explosion loses some fingers, and it's kind of similar to the, the number of fingers or like the way that oh. Roland loses his fingers. Ah, also, right, that's a stretch. What about room two three seven? Room two three seven. There's a couple of legit ones uh, right out the gate. Um, we got page 704. Franny refers to her child as the Lone Ranger. Mm. And we'd also see the Lone Ranger's bike um, in It as Silver, a high ho Silver Away. Um, she mentions the Lone Ranger a couple of times, and I just thought that was interesting in terms neat, of neat. you know the connectivity there. Also, on page 1101, and I thought this was actually kind of cool, and I wonder if this is real <laughs> as we get into our Room 237 stuff. Um, Brad Kitchener says, we had two of the generators going yesterday, and as you know, one of them overloaded and blew its cookies, so to speak. What I mean is that it overlooked. Pause. Uh, overloaded, rather. Well, mm. you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, That's a definite reference. Because the overlook exploded. And I thought, yeah, and the generator. And I thought, maybe they purposely did that. Uh, so, Stephen, we know you're listening and just have yet to uh, contact us or <laughs> that's talk very, to us I, yet. That's pretty cool. I didn't, that's a cool that's one. A little but, fun Stephen, joke. if you were trying to poke fun at this, uh, the old Shining, uh, definitely let us know. We'd love to hear you, uh, your thoughts about that. Mission accomplished. Um, now I've got some interesting, um, you know, fans like to write in. This isn't true. But fans like to write in and, and uh, give us their uh, conspiracy theories and, 
And I just think that there's some some interesting connections here, uh, if you will, and indulge me here. Um, page 141. Mm. Some months later... Oh, so this is from book one. We're going back. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Some months later, where Colorado Reviver Preacher did a show at Brownsville, the Revival... Anybody? Oh, the book revival. Oh, here, Uh, this is definitely here. We go. All right, hold on. Forty years Uh, later, uh, the hardback version, one eighty four. A man called the Walking Dude, or sometimes the Boogeyman. Now, I actually kind of like that because reading the Boogeyman, I thought that was one of the scariest stories, and it's very possible that that Boogeyman is the Walking Dude. Ah, uh, you know. Hey, why not? uh, Which I think just keeps that you know real scary. Uh, Also, uh, page sixty nine. When the door was closed. He got up and went restlessly to the window, double-paned glass and barred on the outside. But it was full dark. No full stars. dark, no stars. Hey. Uh, let, me oh give you a cu- let me give you a couple you, of follow-ups This is that. unbelievable. Let me give you a couple of follow-ups. <laughs> Page 614. By the time she reached the place where the tar stopped and the road went to dirt, it was full dark. That's oh number two. God. And number oh. three, we've got on 704, Franny's orgasm. By the time they had finished... It was full dark. Three full <laughs> okay, dark references. Right. Okay, you know thank you very much. You're right, man. I've, I've uh, heard of near dark, but full dark. You know, pa- page two seventy three. He also mentions an old Buick. So you know, Buick, oh, okay. from, from a Buick, Buick eight. eight. Uh, that's it for my uh, two three seven reaching. I uh, think fan you have said you've got a lot. Everything and and more. To be honest with you, <laughs> more than enough. More than more than enough. Uh, so, but I don't think there's any more um, legit King's Dominion. Stuff in book two. Uh, it's pretty loose. It's I mean, pretty loose. It's, it's yeah. not this, I like. I, but, I do like your um, tenuous ties. So that's, uh, I like how I totally destroy myself there at the end. But I really do think there's something to that rat theory. I do too. I would love to cool hear thing. if we ever talk to Stephen. I would love to um, to to ask him. About well, it. he's obviously listening to this entire thing, so it's important to yeah, once so again just reach out. You well, know, we're yeah. uh, think think of it this way though. On on in the actual dark tower, when they do cross over to the stand in the wastelands, it's a different timeline yeah, you're right it and they're is. on the way they're, on the, they're on the path of the, of the bears so it's very very possible they, they walk through the path of the you know. rat on the way yeah well, well god i love the dark tower this has been very good let's give our final thoughts on book two dad can we go now you ready yeah we've been ready for an hour <laughs> okay i'll be right there you said that a half hour ago yeah, my dad's weird. He gets like that when he's writing. Well, I'll go first, and I'm going to keep it real brief. Um, I love Larry now. I love <laughs> Larry now. I'm really excited to keep plugging on through book three. I basically just started it, so I have no idea what's going to happen. Um, and that's always a fun place to be. Uh, don't spoil this shit for me on Twitter, or I will find you and kick you <laughs> accidentally really hard in the balls. So, anyway, I love Larry. Those are my thoughts. Mac? Um, I, I, I love it. Now, I've, I've finished at this point, but um, if we're just mainly talking about book two, yes. I like book two. It's long in the tooth. I mean, it's definitely long, and they definitely go into things a little bit too much. But um, having said that, I don't know if book three would be as effective if it wasn't as long in book two in terms of the development and slow burn of these characters. Remains to be seen, but uh, as is, I, I, I liked it, and I, I think, uh, and I think that's also why I enjoyed book three so much. Okay, but that's just me. Right. Oh, I'm I'm gonna give it 
Oh, we're oh, not, no, we're no, not ready. No, yeah, no, <laughs> no, I was no, going to say. You put that clown nose away. Yeah, put that nose away. The Pennywise clown red nose away. All right, Matt. Uh, Mike. Mike. Um, one of my favorite attributes of any King book is a sense of camaraderie and teamwork. Something that's going to play into great effect with like It, which is where this podcast gets its namesake. Um, the body, dozens of books that he's that he's done, and he gets that in book two. It takes a while, and yes, we have to have minutes uh, that we go through <laughs> in the meetings. And I agree with you, Justin. I think those are tedious and um, and very long and plotting. But when you really think back at the end of this book about all that was lost and and all that was sacrificed, it, it really does kind of hit you hard, like where those principles were and when so-and-so does return and you come back and you go oh my god like it's not the same anymore it really isn't and it's never going to be the same as it was in these in these moments in book two where it is like utopia and you know yes utopia isn't you know or no utopia is not very interesting to read about but it means something when it's gone and that's the for me, that's the most important part of book two. And um, so, yeah, you know, that's that's what I loved about it. Yeah, for me, again, I think I liked the um, the first half, the, the short story sections, if, as you were, um, much more than the second half. Like, I, I've said my piece on the, the, uh, the meetings and whatnot, and I think that structurally I needed to have a little bit more of the goings-on in Vegas than mm-hmm. we get. I think we only get 15 pages yeah. in Vegas for over that's like two percent of book two is in Vegas and I think it does it's affected in that way that being said I still do enjoy reading about all the Harold stuff mm-hmm. and where that character ends up going um, I still love the characters that we that we meet in book one I love meeting Tom Julie you know again we talked about Julie earlier not not the most compelling person but again this is the weakest of the three for me it is but again, having read book three, I understand why you have to keep a lot of book two in there. Do you have to keep all of book two in there? <laughs> Absolutely not. No. And that's where I stand on the stand. Ooh. Oh. Book two. So this has been a good episode, I think. Pretty mm-hmm. happy with this so yeah. far. Um, <laughs> does anybody want to plug anything, Allison? Uh, well, I've got a new gig I should talk about. Yeah. Um, it, like most of my gigs, doesn't pay. <laughs> Hey, <laughs> but um, I am the new co-host of Debating Doctor Who, which is the podcast started by um, a friend of mine and fellow TV critic Caroline Sita, who I took over for, and Alistair Wilkins, who reviews Doctor Who and Class for the AV Club. Uh, he also reviews Arrow, but that's not a part of the <laughs> Whovian universe. So, um, so if you like Doctor Who, and maybe some of you do, I would imagine that some of you do. Obsessive fandoms tend to come in, I don't know, threes maybe? They come in groups anyway. Um, listen to it. It's fun. Mm. We just talk about Doctor Who and shit. I, I, my very first episode was earlier this week. Well, now it'll be last week when you're listening. But um, we spent like 40 minutes talking about who the next Doctor could be and decided in reality we want it to be Phoebe Waller-Bridge from Fleabag, who would yeah, be amazing. Yeah. Um, but the one that's not going to happen that we were really excited about was uh, Rupert Grint. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Which would be so funny and weird. Can you imagine a doctor that was just kind of um, like awkward, yeah. clumsy, like nice Not guy, the go-getter. And he'd finally be a ginger. That would be great. The, the joke in itself. Right? What, what about so, Rupert Everett? Oh, I'm, I'm bringing it back. I'd love to Too see uh, Olivia Coleman. 
Oh, I'd love to I see think her she'd too. Be great. Yes. Well, and they've both worked with um, Chris Chibnall, the new showrunner. Who is the so, showrunner? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So we'll see what they happens there. They were both there. on Broadchurch. So, um, exciting yeah. times ahead. People keep saying it's going to be Idris Elba, and that's just not going to fucking happen. It's not no, going to happen. Happening. It's just not going to happen, folks. He's rolling. That's right. He's well. In a movie or is that he? we're not sure yeah. exists. <laughs> is he is that going to happen? Yeah. Exactly. Um, anyway, if you like Doctor Who, listen to that. That's definitely. My new, that's my I, I love. Also, watch The Handmaid's Tale and read my reviews on the. I love Who, and I'm going to subscribe. I'm going to return to Hulu for The Handmaid's Tale. I'm looking forward to it. Mac. I know that normally, what we used to do, we used to do the old Gerber and Gerber um, video series. Back. It will come back soon. We're waiting for it to come back. Hopefully, it'll come back pretty soon on the old YouTube and Consequences Sound channel. So, right. But do you want to plug, Mac, my brother's also a pretty good accomplished musician. You want to plug your stuff on SoundCloud? Go for it. This is the, this is the forum. Oh, well, uh, thanks, Justin. Yeah. Oh, I think it's the first on. time you said that uh, to me ever. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh uh, yeah, I'm uh, I'm performing at uh, Transistor in Chicago on uh, June fifteenth, and so definitely come out and check that out. Um, I'm on Bandcamp as uh, uh, Mackenzie James uh, Yeah, and uh, you've got some songs you know, up there too. They're very pop culture referency, and you know um, I've yet to write that uh, that that those Stephen King tunes, but uh, <laughs> I know he loves rock and roll. So Stephen, if you're listening, definitely check me out, man. <laughs> Awesome. All right, uh, Mike. Anything you want to plug? Uh, you know, this this month is a, a very uh, heavy month. We got uh, Alien. We're gonna have a whole uh, not an Alien week per se on Consequence of Sound, but we're gonna have some features. I'm gonna be uh, doing a deep dive into Alien Three. And uh, spoiler wor- uh, <laughs> spoiler alert: I am a huge fan of Alien Three. So uh, you're gonna be it's gonna be a really uh, in depth editorial on that, uh, followed by my review of Alien Covenant, which I am planning to go really long on and uh and because i'm very i've been writing about this movie for two and a half to three years now (laughs) i think i've written about like 50 articles on this already it's just it never ends so i am ready to just purge um and uh and then also twin peaks week we're going to be having on consequence of sound which is going to be very exciting um i'm in uh full uh david lynch uh mode right now i'm very um i'm enjoying it we're uh actually celebrating david lynch over at the music box in chicago so yeah, it's, it's a, a great festival going on with all of his movies, all of his short films. It's been, been pretty, pretty, pretty wild. It'll pretty be wild. over by the time you hear this. But if you're yeah. a time traveler, uh, <laughs> consider jumping backward to it. Just to know that we we have enjoyed it. When you hear it, we enjoyed it. There you go. Yeah, yeah. And what about you, Justin? Oh, thanks, Mike. Um, well, <laughs> Mike and I and a couple other people are working on a big, um, pardon the pun, um, exhaustive uh, Foo Fighters uh, top. We're ranking all the Foo Fighters songs for all you Foo heads out there. And that's been an interesting process because they've got a lot of, they've got a lot of songs that we've never heard first of all, and some lesser songs that were non-albums for reasons. Um, I, I wrote a, a little piece on for the upcoming season of Sense Eight that will hopefully be out by the time this podcast. Oh, airs. it will be. Both, um, both of those features will be cool. Out. So that'll be out there to, to Google that stuff on COS, and we just kind of start working on a huge project. A few of us here actually are going to be embarking on a pretty big um, REM feature, multiple features, for their uh, God, 25th anniversary of Automatic for the People. That's 25 years ago. So God, crazy. Oh, my God. Oh, and yeah. I remember it coming out, too. Oh, I'm so old. Anyway, um, so that's exciting. And uh, last but not least, I want to make it clear once again that I heard the last episode in which Allison confidently stated that I would be dead <laughs> before Mike. And we're in touch with local bookies around here, around Chicago. I'm I'm on to you, Allison. <laughs> and I would like to say that's great. 
but I think um, Randall will be dead before I am. You hear me out there, oh. Randall? Ooh. Randall, check your Ouija origin of evil <laughs> for confirmation. You're gone before me, buddy. I just think if if somebody in let, let's say we get to a, a part a point in time when. Um, you're experiencing heart failure and you can have your heart replaced with a robot heart. I think of everybody on this podcast, the person least likely to accept a robot heart is Justin Gerber. You're right. I would be like, you know what? I'm done here. I'm going to go ahead and die. <laughs> I'm if good that's okay. here. I don't want to end up as a Twilight Zone episode hosted <laughs> by Forrest Whitaker. Um, on the Forrest Whitaker note, <laughs> once again, hey guys, great episode, huh? Yeah, Terrific this is time. Uh, please stick around for because next week we'll be, we'll be doing another news and following the Stephen King tweet. More importantly, uh, we do have another interview coming up that we That's had, right. a few of us here had with, um, can we say it? With Mick Garris? Yes. We, I uh, just said it. We did it. You did. Just, you just spoiled it. There we, we, go. we can't edit it that out at all. So, um, you know, uh, yeah, we uh, we spoke to filmmaker uh, Mick Garris. He was a very nice guy. And uh, he gave us uh, some little pointers and uh, not pointers. I don't know what the hell yeah. that was doing. Here's he gave us some. <laughs> Yeah, uh, he actually gave us some pointers on the podcast. No, uh, he gave us some great anecdotes, and um, we're we're very psyched. And uh, we have a third uh, interview that we're uh, going to be working on uh, after that. Uh, we'll keep that a surprise, and that's going to be a surprise. That's so. great. And then, obviously, uh, two weeks from now, we will be covering the final book in the stand, book three, and then we will be done with the novel, the stand. But of course, two weeks yeah. after that, we'll be back to talk about the nineteen ninety four miniseries. And we're excited. It, I'm looking. We're we're wrapping up the stand. Uh, for those of you keeping track, after the after we're done with all the stand, we're going to be doing the long walk. You might be. You might say this entire process with the stand has been a long. It's walk. been a long. Hey, you know what? I'll say it. It's been a long walk. Oh God, if it's been like the actual long walk, that's frightening. Yeah, that is frightening. <laughs> oh, well, no. you should definitely read the long walk. It's a it's a Richard Bachman book that is available. Unlike Rage, was not available. And then after that, uh, the Dead Zone, and we'll be entering '80s King. So we've wow, we're done with the 70s and Stephen King. This wow. is pretty exciting. Yeah. So until then, please make sure to pass the word around about the podcast. Please keep posting. We love talking to everybody out there. And please leave a review on iTunes. We love those. We um, actually share Facebook. them on our, uh, you know, on a, like uh, emails. We, go, we, we, we love them. We love reading them. You know, it's great. Your rotating cast of female panelists love them in particular. Yeah. <laughs> and she takes special note of those rotating oh, yeah. female panelists. I shouldn't comments. pick up. It's one review. I shouldn't pick it's up true, that It's true, but again. It just didn't catch a name, whatever. It's fine. It just made me laugh so hard. Allison if is absolutely If you're listening, here. I, I'm glad you're so delighted with all eight versions of me. <laughs> <laughs> You've got a great personality. You've got eight specific types. Ooh, it's exciting. Ooh, I'm like Split. You're, oh, let's, all right. we'll, all we'll right. save Split Uh-oh. for another time. <laughs> I haven't seen it yet, but uh, I'm, like, I'm excited I for Glass in two years. Yeah, that'll be cool. You know? Well, see Split first and, yeah. and then get back to me. <laughs> okay. uh, but on that note, what can I say except long days and pleasant nights? I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. But you know you want somebody to treat you Consequence Podcast Network.